0: Welcome back to the show, friends. We've got a good one for you today. I'm real excited about it. It is only going to be difficult because some of us will find that we accidentally didn't do it right. What's it? Teaching, Sunday school, parenting, generally relating to people in a way that doesn't depend on a fear of punishment or a hope of reward. It is not a carrot and stick, conditional kind of love, a conditional kind of education, but rather one that flows from mercy and joyful presence and gift-giving with each other. We'll get into all of that. I'm coming to you with Stacy from a parking lot, a free place to camp. But it's a parking lot not at Walmart or the Cracker Barrel or at the Flying J. No, we are at a casino parking lot, which is a go-to for us on occasion, but also has its own pitfalls. We'll talk about that briefly. But The real business is, first, in segment one, I'm going to recap for you, if you've heard me at all in the past, talking about Molech. Molech, the Old Testament deity where people would sacrifice their children to this underworld god. I'm going to explain the ways in which I like to use this as a as a real metaphor for the ways in which we sometimes accidentally sacrifice our children spiritually and emotionally and mentally in the name of religion. And then Stacy's going to bring in some application for education and parenting through the work of psychologist Alfie Cohn. That will be the second segment. We're really excited that you're with us. It's going to be insightful. Don't lose heart if you've not been doing it right in the past. There's always a chance to re Orient ourselves and each other towards a gracious way of relating and educating. Let's go.
1: All ahead, one third. All ahead, one third. Aye, aye. Time by to dive. Diving stations. Dive, dive. Take ah. down easy. Ah.
2: protect your noggin podcast a guided adventure from fear to love host jeff and stacy mallinson explore ways to outfox religious relational and financial manipulation so take a deep breath because we're not afraid to go deep but don't worry we'll also have some fun along the way we got this
1: Three zero right, right.
0: All ahead, sir. Well, all right, Stacy. It's a little precarious being at a at a casino. Sometimes <laughs> it's a little like more of a dangerous place. This is a safe place, but. Why don't we well, say dangerous it's different. for different <laughs> reasons, yeah.
2: yeah, Well, sometimes, um you spend a little more money than uh, what we might have budgeted for <laughs>
0: well, usually like in our case, we're trying to stay for free right we we go in and you get the little card
2: and they give you usually some sort of free, free money, uh, so to, now twenty to play bucks but it that gets exciting. it doesn't last too long. just gonna
0: throw in forty dollars more, <laughs> but now. Instead but, but, of going but, to a to a RV park where I paid thirty bucks, I'm never gonna pay thirty bucks for a, just a run of the mill RV park. <laughs> but I've I've got myself a, a buck twenty. I mean, hundred twenty dollars in deep.
2: And even and even when we do pay the thirty bucks or whatever, then we usually it comes with water and electricity, and and so there's other reasons why we might stop we're to be able to dump the tanks, which none of that happens when we're at the casino, even if we did spend the with the, the 40
0: exception tanks. of the Riverside in oh, Laughlin, Nevada, where they have a local cost place to have hookups and dump
2: huh,
3: well, yeah
0: but good then to know. that would just be doubly the expense I suppose <laughs> <laughs> so That's so true. but this actually relates to our our overall theme today
2: right so I'm always conflicted because our goal is to find a free place to to camp for the night. And so sometimes, you know, we will do the truck stops and things like that. Uh, It's a little more pleasant, though, to be at the casino parking lots often because there's less big trucks that are coming and going.
0: There's security. Mm -hmm. You can go inside at any time of night and use the restroom.
2: And then... Our dog, Bindi, when there is the trucks and stuff, then she hears all the commotion outside. She's tempted sometimes to want to defend the territory, and that causes her to bark and things. So there's less movement in the casino parking lots. And so that's been, you know, we can generally get a better night's sleep, but unfortunately, we usually spend more money than what we would have if we had paid (laughs) for a camping spot. And I think there's like, we've realized that there's sort of a, a method to that madness. There's a reason that it often happens. And and I think a lot of times when, you know, it, yeah, I'm not as interested in gambling as what you are, right? And It well, depends
0: on if you've got a good game like the uh, 4D games where you can <laughs> put your hands in there and electricity comes out of your hands in <laughs> Ghostbusters or... I haven't seen it lately, but The Walking Dead, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of these games that play to my, my weird psychology.
2: And so you can hear the... noises. The, you can hear the pleasure in his voice as he even explains it. So, yeah, so it can be dangerous. I will try to refrain. <laughs> so I have... So, I, we. you know, one of the things when we are at the casino, I have to remember, you know, what are our goals here? Try to remind yeah. Jeff, what are the goals?
0: If one of the goals is to have fun and to stay out late, right. then it could be a, a perfectly great place to go and... We were hanging out with Chris and Amber and we were, you know, playing quarter machines and you and just you, have a, a nice good time.
2: And you've learned that if you, other than your ID, but if you leave your wallet behind and you already have the cash in hand, that that it's
0: one driver's less license, less... <laughs> $80 cash. That's yeah. an okay night.
2: It's, yeah. It's a little bit harder to,
0: and listen here, judges, <laughs> judgey McJudgenheim's if you go out to a, a baseball game or a football game and you spend 150 bucks on concessions and parking, just think of it that way. I'm going to sit at, you know, a video poker machine and and watch a baseball game and maybe put 10 bucks on a playoff game or something like this. Well, that's a, that's a good time. And it's not that bad, but it's when you start to spend more than you want to spend, then you realize you have found yourself with one intention and then something else happened. You went in to save money and you lost money.
2: The one of the one of the things too that we've often discovered that happens is when we have gone to a casino and it's for entertainment, sometimes especially like maybe on the first night of our our vacation or something that I get a little tired and I have to go to bed early, right? And that's usually when we get into the most trouble.
0: Oh yeah, it bums me out. I'm all excited, I'm ready to have a party. I'm going to go have some fun.
2: So you're still going to go down to the casino without me.
0: And I'm going down with a little bit of of, of, of frustration that you're not partying with me. So I'm going to doubly want to party.
2: (laughs) And then, you know, when, if you find out that the the money that you budgeted, you know, maybe like the hundred bucks or whatever, 40 bucks, goes too quickly, then if you do have your wallet with you then it's there's a big temptation for you to get some more money out get some more money out right because
0: i don't want to go to bed yet now i'm already i'm frustrated that you're not partying with me and now i'm out of money and i'm just sitting there twiddling my thumbs that's not going to be the way so what do you
2: got to do you got to get more right and then you know that inevitably i'm going to find out that
0: i can't i can't come back to the rv
2: without the money that first of all that you first had yeah and then I mean, and probably I, could probably
0: I could come back without the forty dollars or the eighty dollars I had anticipated.
2: Right, that's fine. But, but if I went too deeper, quick. Yeah. so if you went deeper, what I'm trying to say is, I got to chase. You lost that, that money. got which it. was supposed to last maybe a couple nights or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then again, you take the money out of the bank account, and then I, you know I'm going to find that, and that money's gone too. And so you're like, oh, maybe I needed to get a little bit more because I can't just be empty-handed. I can't, you know, right? This is like complete. Well, if I
0: if I'm if I'm in two hundred, I'm going to be in trouble, and if I'm in four hundred, I'm going to be in trouble. So (laughs) I might as well put two hundred bucks to try to get that other two hundred bucks back. (laughs) There's nothing to lose, but just go deeper and deeper into a bottomless pit.
2: And (laughs) these machines that you like, they're usually like these progressive machines that have these like big payoffs, right? So
0: and also very flashy payoffs.
2: (laughs) And and so you're always you're worried about coming home with no money. You're hoping maybe if I just get that jackpot, then
0: everything is going to yep. be
2: okay. Stacy won't be mad at me at all because now I have like, not only the money here for the rest of the trip. To be, so fair, could-
0: <laughs> to be fair with 20 bucks one time, I went to write, finish a book up in Pachanga a while back. And I took, I, I, I said, I wasn't going to gamble at all. I'm just going to stay because we had the free hotel at Pechanga. It's mm-hmm. is a California uh, casino. And, but they gave me the $23, the free money, yep. and I won so much money that I got you an Apple Watch, me an Apple Watch, and we got our second uh, our second son a... Uh, cello. Cello.
3: Yes. A
0: nice cello. An a orchestra nice cello one. from Ecuador. Yes. I mean, it was used, but it was nice. And so I, I felt like a huge hero, and I, I want to be a hero again, <laughs> and it's not been happening for the last few. <laughs> nah.
2: But anyway, so the idea there, though, was is that that fear of punishment... And that hope of reward kind of keeps pushing you in a certain direction that is not necessarily healthy yeah, for I'm you. doing
0: unhealthy things because of that fear of punishment and hope of reward.
2: And that brings us to a little bit what we're going to touch on today. But let me recap Um, in some past episodes that we've looked inside by using discernment to, to cast out our shame. And that's the judgment that we feel from other people. And yet when we've confronted our own fears and doubts and our guilt through looking at our shadow self, we're able to find healing and compassion on ourselves. We can use that to then have compassion for others because you can see how they're in their own predicaments. But all of that helps free us from the power that others have over us. And then in our last episode, we discussed the importance of seeking truth, even when it threatens to shatter our delusions and make us uncomfortable. And today, we're going to look at the ways that we are trying to do the right thing for our children through religion and parenting. But unfortunately, all too often, we accidentally hurt them. And you've seen this in your research on Molech.
0: Yeah. So take everything you think, you know about ancient Israelite religion, dear friends. Just set it aside for a moment. You go back in time. Set aside the the mental pictures of Sunday school clip art and children's Bible cartoon illustrations. You know, uh, did you ever have any any Jesus Star Wars figure type things? I I, I never did. But <laughs> no. I mean, whatever those. I
2: guess the closest to that would be the. Um Sorry, I'm I'm thinking at Christmas time the nativity scenes. Right, Right, a little nativity (laughs) scene.
0: But, But take all of that. And imagine instead that you're in a Judean street market seven centuries before the time of Jesus. So this is, yeah, it's Bible times. But you're going to expect one thing. Everybody's wearing, you know, what they wear at the Christmas pageant or something. But what you find shocks you. It's a bunch of little dolls in booths. And it's the goddess Asherah. Mm. You've got all these little figurines, and you're thinking, now, well, hold on a second. First of all, ancient Israelites aren't supposed to be worshiping goddesses, and most definitely, if they had a goddess, it shouldn't be an image, you know, right, so these are right. these are really breaking two two commands, depending on how you number the Ten Commandments. Uh, different traditions will conflate the one and two, or sp- split them out, but it's, don't have any other gods, now you've got Asherah, and definitely don't make a graven image. Mm. Well, there there it is. And... One of the reasons for this is that there's often a great difference between the official religion, the religion that's written down, the religion of those who are in leadership, and the religion of the average person. One of the most common things for the average person is fear of their spouse or their child dying in childbirth. It was a very common problem uh, up until very recently, and it's right. still a problem around the world.
2: When you think of like, yeah, just out of, even out of my th- three sisters there's four of us girls we all had babies and three of them had pretty big complications that if without the modern technology at least three of i think are the my nieces and nephews would not be alive today
0: yes certainly not in some small town outside of uh, jerusalem and so amulets figurines these things are widespread you can see them in archaeology it's a very common religious thing and in fact, when I visited Japan, there were uh, a bunch of these caves that had little, tiny, little Buddha-looking gods that were were what people would then light a little candle for or put into the cave either to help to commemorate the death of a child or to protect the, the unborn child through this process and the mother. And so it's very, very common. Now... That then means that it's entirely possible for us to see a religion have these two forms. Again, the official form and then the popular form. Mm. And and they could be at great odds. There's also an, an interesting shard. Uh, there's a piece of pottery. There's, a, there's an inscription where there's a picture of a kind of cow-headed deity. And in the back is a woman sitting, uh, like a goddess, sitting in a chair. And I don't know if she's reading or looking at a. A mirror but it says the blessing of yahweh and his asherah
2: she reminds me of like as if she's sitting in her little vanity chair you know like maybe like looking at her mirror like combing her hair that kind of thing she's you know?
0: she also has unfortunately she's got the face of something like the predator i'm not mm. quite sure now we'll we'll post this image onto the show notes so you can see it but the main point of it is When you look at this, it's shocking to think that there were at least some people in in this region of the Holy Land that had a picture. You're not supposed to have a picture, but they had a picture of Yahweh, the God of you know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Essentially, there's there's details there that get tricky because ultimately, part of this is this wife, this mother deity, is originally to have been the wife of El, the Canaanite deity. But the old man El gets replaced because the as, the as the Israelites move in, then they have this replacement. They take the wives and they kill the husbands in war in the Old Testament. And if that's happening at the earthly level, this might happen in the heavens. So the idea would be the God of the people that were coming into the land, displacing the Canaanites, taking the Canaanite wives, letting the Canaanite wives perhaps worship their old mother deity and just saying well El's gone Yahweh's the new god you can worship your female deity but that female deity is now married to Yahweh now this is not hmm. something that you would see in the old testament as we have it but it is something that would be in the minds of the average person
2: can't we all just get along we'll just throw <laughs> them all in there
0: <laughs> i don't know i mean kind of get along there was some some death perhaps on the, along the way but the main point is That along with all these other deities from the region, we find something that I would think is pretty horrific. And the more I researched it, I realized that that this idea of child sacrifice to a Cthulian underworld deity, this this, uh, Molech, was a real problem, really. It was pretty widespread. Many scholars in the 19th century just couldn't believe that that was real. And, and in fact, many scholars would say it's probably just negative propaganda about the Canaanites or, you know, what, whatever people group. You could say these guys are bad because they sacrificed their children, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: But what we actually find are bones. <laughs> mm-hmm. We find archaeological evidence of this. We find, we find uh, images that are engravings where people see that there's this underworld deity that has a bowl of babies, basically. Babies and pork, as we talked about in a previous. Yeah, Yeah, it's terrible. And now you think about it, you'd say, well, you know, isn't religion supposed to be about you know, singing kumbaya, loving your brothers and sisters and, and being kind and having a personal relationship with God and finding spirituality? And the answer is not always. In fact, in many ancient religions, especially before what's called the Axial Age, when there is a shift towards more of an ethical religion in Buddha, Lao Tzu, the Hebrew prophets, Confucius, that happens. But before that, human beings tended to have pretty bloody religion. So where does the cult of Moloch show up in the Bible then? Well, it's, it's really all throughout it in the Old Testament, but a couple passages are really important. First 1 Kings 11.7 says that, that none other than the wealthy and wise Solomon built, quote, a high place, and it was for God's love by many of his wives. So Solomon had these wives. They cared about these multiple gods. One of them was, quote, Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. But now here's Solomon. I mean, think about this you got to get your head around it. We say, trust the religious leaders, you know, trust those in authority.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, here's somebody in authority, and he's letting this thing happen that is absolutely antithetical to everything that we're supposed to think God intends for people in a just society. And then a second one, my favorite really, is Jeremiah 32:35 quote, and they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, To cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire unto Molech, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. My favorite line there is, not only essentially God's saying, not only did I not tell you to sacrifice your children, Mm -hmm. I don't even know how you came up with this stupid idea. Mm -hmm. This is a crazy idea that I couldn't even imagine. Right. And again, people used to think. <laughs>
2: I never thought to tell you not to do it. <laughs> right. Like right? I would. Like, right.
0: To, you didn't say not to. Like uh, <laughs> now, there's a there's a, a point to this in in sacrifice and in in magic. We see throughout the ancient world. We see it in classical literature that there is a way in which sacrificing the best thing that you've got, in fact, the thing that you love the most, mm-hmm. needs to be sacrificed.
2: It shows how serious you are, how much you mean it.
0: Yeah. Even in Isaiah, they talk about, Isaiah talks about this idea that the firstborn, you know, even if I sacrifice my firstborn, it won't be good enough because of what I did. It doesn't even necessarily say that it's obviously not something that works. There was a way in which they would say, maybe it's not commanded, but the magic works. Because that was the principle of it. You give of your first fruits. If you're going to give the first fruit of your crops or of your livestock, then certainly if you've got children and children are seen in the ancient as world, property, right? unfortunately, right? It is part of your riches. So you don't even think of it as being cruel. Hmm. You think of it as being selfless, hmm. being devout, right? So here's, here's the point of it. You've got now this precedent for people doing something that they think is holy and devout and religiously powerful, when in fact they're doing something that is quite the opposite.
2: So you tend to apply the term "molech" to any sort of religion of of cruel power. So what ties it all together then?
0: So molech is, as a concept, just that idea that we mentioned at the start of the show, this idea that with good intentions, even the best intentions, religious people too often sacrifice their kids the kids of others, their well-being for the sake of the ideology or the religion as a whole. And that's what makes it dangerous, because it's so hard to stop people from doing the things that are wrong. Think just in, in the case for me as a, as a child. I don't think in sixth grade that the principal thought he was doing anything bad by whacking us with the, with the paddle. Right, he... He thought he was helping us.
2: He was instilling some values in you, right?
0: And if he didn't, we'd become bad. We would hurt ourselves and others, that sort of thing, you know. And also, it was going to help us be good, religious, Christian kids. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't doing it on purpose. He wasn't doing something bad on purpose. He thought what he was doing was good, and it turned out to be bad. That's the whole principle behind this.
2: Right. So then, uh, how on earth would anyone bring themselves to do this, though?
0: Yeah, like the death part. Right. You know, ultimately, in the, in the historical sense, no one has a real answer because you don't see people directly saying whether or not they're conflicted about it or they're pained by it and why they're doing it. But there are some, some ways to guess, you know. And I think that the, the closest answer would be that they all point to fear. Mm. It's always about fear. A, a religion of Molech, to me, is a religion of fear cults are religions of fear you get in because you're afraid of the world outside you stay in because you're afraid of leaving and the pain and the pain of leaving or the punishments for being cast out of you know whatever benefits that religion has in the classical world in classical literature we see that human sacrifice often happened around times of of war so when a king say they want to, would,
2: they want to make sure they win, right? Yeah, and they want to make sure that their that their side is blessed or has the blessing of of God.
0: Yeah, and it's it's a situation where people might be coming down and killing everybody. So you figure it's maybe worth the trade. Yeah, it would you have know? been also
2: if anything did happen to you. You you wanted to do, have done everything you could to appease that God. Yeah, right?
0: you also want to let the whole town know that even if you lose the war. They don't want to turn on you and say you're a bum because you at least showed your devotion. You know, you're sending all these other people to go die in battle. You, You might want to send one of your children into the underworld. And part of it, too, is they thought that there would be this conduit. There seems to be this connection where if a child was sacrificed to Molech, they might be put under an altar. And then the rest of the family would be buried somewhere else, and they would honor that child that was sacrificed as if they're almost like a, uh, an emissary mm. that their soul would maybe go back and forth and intercede for them with the deity, right? And in many cases, though, this this fear, you know, that's that's the obvious version. Like how we how are we letting this happen in in a in a direct sense? Well, fear. But I think in another sense. We could say children in the modern world are sacrificed to religion when they are being harmed by, let's say, abusive situations or even just difficult, legalistic, demoralizing situations. But we say it's what we need to do so they don't go to hell.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, you want to... Yeah, their eternal salvation is at risk here. So it's whatever painful situations they might be in, it's not going to be nearly as bad than if it was all of eternity,
0: correct? You got a daughter, Yvonne. Yvonne's being bad. Yvonne doesn't want to behave. You send her to the Christian school, they're going to, you know, whip her into shape, literally and figuratively. You don't like it necessarily, but you also don't like the idea that if you can't find a way to get her under control, Mm -hmm. she might go to everlasting torment in hell. So therefore, we're going to... We're going to teach her in this way. Now, I'm going to wait till we get to the second segment where you're going to jump in and explain to us that even if that's what was going on in your mind, that fear of punishment and hope of reward actually doesn't work to get people to understand the truth or even your way of thinking. It's counterproductive. So that's our thesis for the show, that even if the fear and the rewards really did depend on you, The ultimate reality is that the methodology of punishment, conditional love, and coercion is not actually going to help anything. It's actually going to hinder it. As I've said before, in my 20 years of teaching, many of the young people that I've met, maybe after the fact, after they've been through a religious, after they've been through a parochial school or an intense kind of Sunday school setting, they're not picking up what we're trying to lay down. They're not getting the message that they were supposed to get. And worse, they're kind of getting the exact opposite of what we're laying down. They're not hearing about the grace and the mercy. They're hearing about condemnation and wrath, and that's kind of the end of what they heard. And because of this, this toxic religion and the way that that toxic religion gets the word Christianity perhaps slapped on it is really counterproductive to what I've been trying to do when they finally get to my classes. Right. And I realized that this is very, very tragic and very, very serious. So much so that I've come to realize that in many ways, overall, in Western Christianity at least, there's been a hostile takeover of the religion of Jesus by Molech.
2: So do you think of Molech as like a personal deity then?
0: I'm not, I'm not ruling it out. <laughs> but that's not really what, what I mean. You know, it's not the exact equivalent of, say, the devil. Right. But it is... I think closer to what what Jesus talks about as Mammon, kind of the the god of money. We're not really sure that anybody was thinking of Mammon as a personal deity, is although it like more
2: like a force that's driving action in certain directions than it is an actual being that's trying to create this. Is that yeah, what you're it's
0: it's not a personality. It's more like a negative force in the world that is governed by algorithms and and finances and mm. and the system itself. And the thing is, for instance, with politics, advertising cultivates extremism. No one's necessarily doing it on purpose. But if I'm going to go onto Google AdSense, for instance, mm-hmm. it's much easier for me to say, all right, I am trying to sell my product to uh, people that are conservative right mm-hmm. so i'm going to find keywords oh, and see, likes yes. and
2: then they'll whatever circles they hang around or things they listen to then they keep hearing that over and over again right so those it those could be messages. like a
0: radio a radio show host a radio show host on terrestrial radio is often going to be pushed into an extreme position because listeners that are interested in that will flock to it when it's a clear message so you want to get as as hard right as you can and advertisers are going to want that because they want the listenership, but they could also be equally happy to go into, say, a television program that is hard left, right? Mm-hmm. So an advertiser could, could advertise, I don't know if exactly these overlaps are there, but you could imagine a corporation advertising on Rush Limbaugh, a conservative talk show host, and then also going on to Stephen Colbert at late night and advertising there while he's just talking about how much he disagrees with whoever's in office in the in the and Republican that's as long party. As
2: whatever you're selling applies to both groups.
0: But right? moderation is is often not going to push the advertising in that same way, but it's even more intense, not on terrestrial radio and and television, but on the internet. And we're finding this that mm-hmm. the internet, social media is driving a huge wedge between people in America, but it's, but it's really money that's doing it. Let me just give you another example how money can control us in both directions, I would say, you know, whatever it means, the left and the right, in religious education. Listen up, dear principals and college administrators. If you had a through K-12 Christian school, it's unlikely that they would be very strongly Advertising that they are welcoming of LGBTQ students, I've not seen it very often. In
2: certain circles, right?
0: Uh, have you seen it? Have you been to a Christian school, a Christian K through twelve school that said we are open and affirming of LGBTQ not that, kids? Yeah, not,
2: I have not been to. No, not certainly not advertising it. Yeah. And if you're lucky, they might have a little bit of support in some places. On campus, they could, but have you? If you're lucky, I'm
0: talking about K through twelve.
2: Oh, K through twelve. Yeah, no.
0: You're. I'm sorry. Okay, so. Just go with me on this. All right. So so you haven't. No, I have not. And the reason is, for the most part, that one of the ways that you could get people to pay extra money to go to your Christian school is to say, I don't have to deal with that cultural war problem Mm -hmm. that's going on in the public school down the road. So down the road, they're trying to teach my kids about sexual ethics in a way that I don't like. Right. If I pay these thousands of dollars, I can come over here to the Christian school and
2: have them here. The
0: teachers might have a kind of nuanced perspective on it. The administrator might want to have a different perspective on it, but they don't have a lot of choice and there's not anyone conspiring against them. It's money itself. Right. Mm -hmm. The money is what is driving it. The parents want to pay tuition. Why do they want to pay the tuition? If that's one of the reasons they want to pay the tuition, then they almost have no choice if they want to survive as an institution.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Same thing with, say, evolution. Right, if science, a, K th- if be- a K through K-12 Christian school wanted to be open to theistic evolution, they could not really do that in a very vocal way and keep the majority of the students that they've got paying tuition. Now, there may be different schools. Maybe I'm just traveling in different circles. It's certainly true for conservative evangelical and parochial Lutheran schools for the most part. The flip side is true for Christian higher education. Money drives that. But in that context, it could be the NCAA. If you want to have a sports team mm-hmm. at your Christian college... You
2: have to de- gender-neutral bathrooms. Right. And,
0: and now you've, you've got a financial need. Mm-hmm. You want to get those student-athletes to your college, but if you aren't more open
3: right. Right,
0: to the LGBTQ community, then you are going to have a difficult time recruiting certain students and many times especially in christian higher ed you have people that just want a good private education and it's a slightly different motivation not always sometimes people go to christian colleges and universities because their parents don't want them influenced by the godless you know state school i get that so there's always that piece but there's a way in which money tends to secularize i would argue tends to secular secularize church related higher education and tends to make more conservative or more traditional perspectives prominent in K through 12 what i'm saying here though is that in in all of that what's at, what's at stake is in fact this kind of impersonal money force rather than whatever people think happens to be true it may be that people at the K through 12 schools are very happy with what the outcome is And vice versa, you might find faculty that are happy to have a a more secular trend in the higher education. But we can see this there, then we must ask, where else is this at play? And one of the big things that I found, and it's, it's very lamentable, but there are many organizations that are geared towards specifically Christian professors and geared towards teaching Christian professors that political conservatism, capitalism and free market e- economics is entailed by the teachings of Jesus it may be it may not be i don't think it is not in the certainly not in the way that they would say but i'm going to let you dear listener figure that out as you as you want to play that out but i do know that very often there are people with money and they want to keep their money and they want to influence minds especially people that are principled evangelical kids say and they don't want to see these evangelical kids going off to the state school and becoming marxists you know because there's a you know in the humanities socialism is a pretty middle of the road sort of Not political me, yeah, philosophy heard, in history sociology college, you go to
2: college and you get more liberal i've become heard a democrat that. i've heard that
0: before and when we were at colorado christian that was one of the reasons that I think that Bill Armstrong came into the presidency because there were people that realized, and, and and certainly Bill Armstrong himself wanted to have a university that was going to create politically conservative Christian minds that were going to push back against the tide of liberalism in the culture wars. He was able to do this with the help of of other donors that, that had, had yeah. Money, yeah, there's not a lot of money. Now, again, he might be right and I might be wrong about certain political philosophical theories, mm-hmm. but I will say there's not a lot of money going towards advocacy for refugees, poor people, and so forth, right? So money is usually on the side of people who are in a place of of advantage. Right. It just is. Right. And whether or not they're right is immaterial here i'm just trying to establish the point that there is this phenomenon that i've been observing where money tends to preserve itself even when people that are rich or have the money don't realize how it's working because they might not even realize that there are a lot of great little organizations that could use the money but they're advocating for something that is unseen Mm -hmm. because the people people who are poor tend not to have the most prominent positions in the world right and right? right. you could say well what about the liberal media or hollywood yes 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 well
2: and even i mean even it takes money to run for election
0: oh yeah oh, a lot no of that's money. i mean th- the campaign finance reform is in the news it's hot in the news it's a big deal but uh, i want to say with the uh, hollywood I-, I think if if i could could appeal here to the philosopher Slavoj zizek zizek is really interesting on this because he he would say that part of the problem with, say, Hollywood liberals is that they have this nagging sense of deep guilt because they know they're not really producing that much, <laughs> you know? Right. I made $4,000 when I was in eighth grade by being in a cherry Coke commercial and just kind of skimboarding. Isn't that crazy? And yeah. saying, life's full of cherries <laughs> or something. And, and, and uh, that was a very low-paying gig. Imagine if I made $40,000, one of my friends was in a Century 21 commercial and said, Dad, we're home, and made $40,000. So, you know, you get more lines, you get, you know, broader play. Mm -hmm. The point is, if you've got that much money from something like that, you want to feel your conscience alleviated just a little bit. So you just, you kind of tip some causes. Now, I'm not, saying that they're all hypocrites, I'm not saying all rich liberals in Hollywood are hypocrites, I'm saying it's the same kind of thing that I even find myself doing, and Zizek makes fun of it as well, when I go to a coffee shop and I say, I want to get the coffee that's, yeah, it's maybe not the most humane in terms of, of of where it comes from. But we're going to give, you know, 5% to this cause. Mm. We're going to give 5% back to the community so we can kind of exploit this community in Ethiopia or Brazil or what have you. But we're going to give them some, some benefits. Ease your conscience you know. a little bit. I just need to ease my conscience. Yeah. Now, my point is, is that, therefore, this business about money is creating or is... Is kind of dictating things in such a way that it becomes the guiding force for the system. Mm -hmm. And when Christianity or any religion is wanting to be in a place of privilege and access to power, when religious people want to matter, Mm -hmm. they find themselves sometimes inadvertently getting bribed. We see this from time to time mm. where people, people want to be in these spots. I'll give you one really interesting example. Francis Schaefer. I think generally Francis Schaefer was somebody who was, you know, uh, trying to do the right thing. But he went on to TBN and his, and his son Frankie Schaefer, who, you know, he wasn't all that pleased with the way dad worked things out ultimately. But he, he tells of this story where his dad thought, well, I'm against abortion and I need to get the message out. And I need my ministry to be able to have more exposure. So I'm going to go on to the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which at the time was all health and wealth, televangelist kind of hustlers. And, but he did it because he said, the, the message is so important. And my ability to fundraise for what I'm doing is so important that we're going to make this compromise. And I used to just get so mad about this, mm-hmm. but there was a time when when we were doing the Virtue in the Wasteland podcast, and Dan and I just for a second had to wrestle with the same temptation because somewhere along the line we ran into somebody who worked for TBN. Was that you that yeah, ran? It was my you ran into that person? Yeah. You are such a trickster.
2: <laughs> Why am I a trickster? Well, no, they
0: just said, "Hey, like we can get you on the TV."
2: Yeah. No, I went to a a, a Salesforce training. Thing and and there was another person that was in charge of some of the database stuff and so they were in training and that was from TBN and they so can you imagine connections there, would, yeah.
0: would protect your noggin be able to get airtime on TBN now okay. I don't know TBN every once in a while has well and
2: I, and I think too leading up changed. to leading up to the Reformation the anniversary of the Reformation that was the context sure because we were with an organization that that was you know right. the main but theme at the time it,
0: isn't it my responsibility to help promote the And on and on. The point being, Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. Mm -hmm. So part of Molech is money, but it's not money for money's sake. Molech is a religion of cruel power. It's about power. And I got this idea way back when I was enamored by a play called A Man for All Seasons. At CCU, You're, you
2: were act, an actor in it, right?
0: I was Henry VIII. Yes, you were. I think I did a dang. You did good a great job, and job. I, I
2: loved your tights. They're sexy.
0: Oh my goodness! <laughs> that was the most uncomfortable part of it. I liked everything but the tights. Now I will say this: nobody knows. Nobody knows this. I'm going to announce it because why not? It's been so long since then. But I convinced the the director of theater to do this. I said, could we do A Man for All Seasons as our play mm. this year? Mm-hmm. And I'll be in. I said, I'll participate if, you, if we do this. And the reason is that at the time, President Armstrong was the president. And he was putting pressure on my friend Andrew, who was a Democrat. He was more, you know, le- leaned left. And he was putting pressure on his job because of some of the things that Andrew had done to write against Rick Warren and the the ways in which Saddleback Church in Orange County was giving money to Kenya. Andrew was working in Kenya and realized it was hurt,
2: hurting more than helping. Yeah,
0: no. Ironically, total side issue. Andrew was doing micro loans, trying to keep free market in a mm, certain like mm-hmm. local economy going, and the handouts were hurting them morally and financially. So that was weird, right? So rich white capitalists were giving uh, poor black people money in the name of their version of religion, and yet what they were doing is they were crushing the, the nascent f- free market there. I guess. you know mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. the, the, the commerce. Side total side issue. But what I wanted to do was to use this play kind of like in Hamlet where you try to convince the king through a play. I wanted us to have this play (laughs) so that he would see that Thomas More, who gets executed by Henry VIII, was a man of principle and that you really want men of principle and women of principle around even if you disagree with them. Correct. I don't think he got the point. <laughs> no, so. He said, I love that play. I'm like, oh, okay. But uh, that's why that, that was, was there. Yeah. But in this play, there's this line. And the line is from Roper. Will Roper is the Lutheran son in law of Thomas More. And, and Roper says, My God wants service to the end and unremitting, nothing else. And then Thomas More answers, Are you sure that's God? He sounds like Moloch. But indeed, it may be God. And whoever hunts for me, Roper, God, or devil, will find me hiding in the thickets of the law. Well, that got me going. Now, I had read this before we did the play at Colorado Christian, but it was so fascinating to me that here was this this earnest young man, this humanist scholar in the play, who desperately wanted to follow the true God and said that the true God wants service to the end and unremitting. And, by the way, I think the real Thomas More might have agreed with that. (laughs) But... (laughs) But in the play, I thought it was really powerful to say, no, no, no. What you're talking about when you use the name God is actually something that sounds to me like the underworld deity Moloch.
2: Moloch, right.
0: Now, Moloch, Moloch, you can pronounce it several ways. But Stacey, would you mind reading my favorite passage about Moloch as a, as a concept from the philosopher and atheist Bertrand Russell?
2: Absolutely. It says the savage like ourselves feels the oppression of his impotence before the powers of nature, but having in himself nothing that he respects more than power. He is willing to prostrate himself before his gods without inquiring whether they are worthy of his worship. Pathetic and very terrible is the long history of cruelty and torture of degradation and human sacrifice endured in the hope of placating the jealous gods. Surely the trembling believer thinks when what is most precious has been freely given their lust for blood must be appeased and more will not be required the religion of moloch as such creeds may be generically called is in essence <laughs> the religion of moloch as such creeds may be generically called is in essence the cringing submission of the slave who dare not even in his heart Allow the thought that his master deserves no adulation. Since the independence of ideals is not yet acknowledged, power may be freely worshiped and receive an unlimited respect despite its wanton infliction of pain.
0: Cringing. Cringing. Is that your response to the God that you think exists? When you go.
2: I hope. That's scary.
0: When you go to your place of worship. Are you bowing before God because God is powerful and scary? That's an interesting thing.
2: A lot of people, they do. They, they fear this, this God that just is out to get them.
0: Yeah, and is cruel. And you don't really ask the question whether it's okay that that God is cruel. You're just scared enough that you just want to get on his good side. Mm-hmm. And that is, first of all, breaks my heart. Please, friends, you're free of that. Yes. Be free of that. Walk free of that. If that's the God that really exists, then you can also ask yourself, why would you worship that God? Right. Even because you're going to go to hell if you don't. And I, do
2: you want to be in heaven with that uh, God for nope. all of eternity? No, <laughs> I, no, I don't think I want to be any no. closer to that God.
0: No. And And I think one of the things that was the most liberating for me was when I said, if that religion of cruel power, if the God of the universe is like molech then i'm not going to worship that god even if i've got to go to hell because then hell will become heaven
2: yeah
3: because everybody that doesn't I, worship I, that god a yeah, way better place yeah. to be
0: now uh, i'm trusting that that's not the case but but again i think it's important for us to say that if it were the case that's not a reason to worship that god other than no. other than self-preservation i think in the long run it's mean, is true, that really
2: self-preservation
0: mm, no, that's losing yourself to the evil system. Yeah. Ooh, now that's from Bertrand Russell, A Free Man's Worship. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to read a little something because I-, I just couldn't let you read it, baby. I got to read this one. This is Howl, part of Howl mm. by Allen Ginsberg, who spells it also Moloch, and I'll read it that way. But this is, again, not really talking about sacrificing children in the ancient world, but in the current world. He says, this is Howl by Allen Ginsberg part of it what sphinx of cement and aluminum bashed upon their skulls and ate up their brains and imagination moloch solitude filth ugliness ash cans and unobtainable dollars children screaming under the stairways boys sobbing in armies old men weeping in the parks moloch moloch nightmare of moloch moloch the loveless mental moloch Moloch, the heavy judger of men. Moloch, the incomprehensible prison. Moloch, the cross soulless jailhouse and congress of sorrows. Moloch, whose buildings are judgment. Moloch, the vast stone of war. Moloch, the stunned governments. Moloch, whose mind is pure machinery. Moloch, whose blood is running money. Moloch, whose fingers are ten armies. Moloch, whose breast is a cannibal dynamo. Moloch, whose ear is a smoking tomb. Moloch, whose eyes are a thousand blind windows. Moloch, whose skyscrapers stand in the long streets like endless Jehovah's. Moloch, whose factories dream and croak in the fog. Moloch, whose smokestacks and antenna crown the cities. Moloch whose love is endless oil and stone. Moloch whose soul is electricity and banks. Moloch whose poverty is the specter of genius. Moloch whose fate is a cloud of sexless hydrogen. Moloch whose name is the mind. Moloch in whom I sit lonely. Moloch in whom I dream angels. Crazy in Moloch. Lack love and manless in Moloch. Moloch who entered my soul early. Moloch in whom I am a consciousness without a body. Moloch who frightened me out of my natural ecstasy. Moloch whom I abandon. Wake up in Moloch. Light streaming out of the sky. Moloch, Moloch, robot apartments, invisible suburbs, skeleton treasuries, blind capitals, demonic industries, spectral nations, invincible madhouses monstrous tombs they broke their backs lifting moloch to heaven pavement trees radios tons lifting the city of heaven which exists and is everywhere about us
3: that's
2: that's powerful when i heard that yeah it's just crazy and then that idea of like i I just the, the the windows of a th- you know, the thousand windows or the eyes or whatever. Yeah.
0: Wow. That, just, this know, just, just this industrial world. Now there's this whole yeah, thing. Now the city's fine, but he's, I mean, this is why I think we said last week, you know, Ginsburg, Ginsburg had something there.
2: Again, if, if money is the focus, if making the money is the focus, then that's what that Sort of becomes. Yeah, go right? back to the
0: casino. What are we trying to get accomplished here? What is our metric for success? If success is trampling our enemies with our military machine, if it's raising our banking structures up to the sky like towers of Babel, then we're winning, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. until they get knocked down. Yeah. Right? I mean, and that's why at 9 11, in many ways, on 9 11, when the terrorists flew into those buildings, what they were doing is they were attacking our axis mundi, as Mircea Eliade would call it. They were attacking our our, our, our idol.
2: Well, and, and you don't really... I mean, if, if you already see torture or pain or death, you don't want to remedy that with more torture, pain, and death.
0: Yeah, definitely. But you also see that in that world... It becomes more of a tool or an option, right? When people see meaninglessness and hopelessness, that's how you get people shooting places you know, up.
2: And just burn it all down. just yeah. like we talked about yeah. in the other
3: episode. It's a, you know, it's a cynical and, hopelessness
0: yeah. that right. comes out in violence. And it's, it's a horrid, horrid thing. But that's what we're doing today. We are not increasing the love. <laughs> We tend in this world to find ourselves, not not everywhere in every sector of life, but right now things are uncomfortably uh, violent and angry and divisive, and that ends up having, you know, really negative long-term consequences.
2: Yeah, so... Uh, what do you think is the solution to this problem then?
0: Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, in a certain sense, you know. Isn't,
2: isn't that always the, the answer? Always the answer in Sunday school, Sunday but school? it's the Jesus.
0: real answer. If you think of Molech as, like what the Rastafarians call Babylon, you know, and or the system, or the man, or whatever, in, in this way, whatever this Molech is, the exact opposite is, is Jesus. Jesus stands at the other side. The last shall be first and the first shall be last.
2: Jesus gives of, of himself.
0: Yeah. So instead of conquering, Jesus Jesus says, I am going to I'm going to give you me. I am not going to kill you. You're gonna I'm gonna take I'm gonna take the blows.
2: And God says this is the once and for all sacrifice, right?
0: And in that way, you could say, whatever you're if you're a Christian, you've maybe got a theory of the atonement. What if you think of it this way, just for a moment, that in a world where we always think we've got to kill our kids and give that dead body up to God, what if this thing gets reversed in the narrative of Jesus? That Jesus says, you can stop this business of the sacrifice. You go back to the Akeda with Abraham. It really is a terrifying story. But one thing you've got to know about Abraham's sacrifice, if you read it, it's not like there's a lot of a lot of hand-wringing about sacrificing the child in the sense that it's cruel or out of the ordinary. When Abraham heard that he was supposed to go up on a hill and sacrifice his son, and when his wife heard this, they knew what that was. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an uncommon thing. It was like, well, I, I don't know how this works, but like, okay.
3: This is, yeah. Right?
0: And so that's hell. <laughs> yeah, that. that's hellish. But what is happening then is the best read that I could possibly imagine on that story of Abraham and Isaac is where the angel stops Abraham from sacrificing his son and substitutes the ram, but in doing so is saying, not necessarily that God that God wants even the ram to die, but to say, there's going to be a way in which we are going to put an end to this way of thinking. This system is going away, and a new logic of okay. love and grace and mercy is coming in in terms of Jesus. Be
2: done with the sacrifices.
0: Yeah. So so this is very very important.
2: So how do we sacrifice our children today? Because we don't like you know take our kids unless there's some weird rumors of satanic worship and things. But those are
0: not part- real. But there but there are places around the world in 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 places like. On virtue in the wasteland, we we interviewed Justin Wren, the MMA fighter, Mm -hmm. and he knew of Mbuti pygmies, young boys that were sacrificed for good luck Mm. for Bantu uh, businesses. Mm. So it still happens. There are, you know, every once in a while, people will send me, or I will find news stories about archaeological finds where we found in Peru or other places where there were molek like sacrifices, but but for the most part. We do this in emotional ways. And this is why this is so close to my heart because I see the wounded. What I get is students who come and have been killed inside, mm. spiritually wounded at least, by well intentioned but horrifically traumatizing religious teaching. That's why we are doing what we're doing on this podcast. Absolutely. That's why we encourage you to help us out, bring us out for workshops. Let's, let's, let's get at this problem because we're accidentally hurting our kids in the name of religion. Sometimes when we stick with a church that is abusive and we can't leave because we think that surely the leaders aren't as bad as some people say they are, or even if they're bad, we don't know where else to go. Right. Frankly, you know, when we get to our kids, if we aren't paying attention to their pain, if we're not listening to their, their cries of, of of agony in the context of a bad religious community then we are harming them they
2: are being sacrificed they are being in sacrificed the name of religion especially
0: for, especially if for you're for hey God. like there's if there's if it's going great for you if you're a, an important person within that religious group you know if you, you get something out of it but your kids are suffering and you can't trade that out you can't trade even a career for instance you know mm-hmm. um or like let's say in 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 one group i wrote a chapter on recently they have this they have this concept of the sp the suppressive person where you will you will shun somebody who is no longer a member of the church group or the religious group mm-hmm. and they no longer get to see their kids so in that sense you're sacrificing that relationship or vice versa if you're a parent and your child leaves the cult and they stop talking to the children because that's for their soul. That's what Molech's about. It's something that happens in cults. It happens in war. It happens in... in Emotional abandonment and all sorts of things. Well, and
2: even think about all of the the kids that are pastors' kids. That there's a certain yeah. standard that they have to keep up just because their their parent is the pastor. Yeah. They get on the spotlight and gotta be
0: extra hard on and, the kids.
2: Yeah, and and make sure Missionary that they are kids. a good example, or that you know, just to prove that the pastor is also a good parent. There's so much on uh, pressure on on the children of pastors' kids. It's it's so sad to see the effects of that. When, when they come to your office.
0: So what we're going to look at after the break is that we're going, to, we're going to be talking about a way in which we need to reframe, rethink the way we're teaching our kids because as much as we want them to come along to our way of thinking or behave so we look good at church or whatever metric of success you've got for your, your you know, successful kids, going to the right college with the right job, whatever, if you don't listen to what we're saying... You're free to do that. But my warning is, if you don't listen to what we're saying, you aren't going to gain anything. If you go against what we're about to tell you to live graciously and be open with your kids and give them the freedom to explore and develop their own personal understanding of life and religion, you aren't going to gain any real adherence to the truth. And let me tell you, there's a chance that if you follow what we're going to tell you, that they're going to come around to your perspective. The best chance you've got for them to come around to your way of seeing faith and politics and life and who they're going to marry is if you can be engaged with them as people with respect. We'll get to that. But in either case, there's a chance that they might not see things the way that you see them.
2: And you have to respect that too, because otherwise you're still going to lose them.
0: You would lose them anyway and... I don't see why having them out of your lives is a win no. if it's not going to help with anything
2: and especially because there might be something in the future that they might come to you when when you did respect their them being people and, and thinking yes. differently
0: no caveat caveat don't be buying your kids methamphetamines just because <laughs> no, you know what I'm saying there's these you you see on TV right, where there's right. there's these codependent relationships yeah, yeah 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 no. No, no. And sometimes you have to have that kind of cutoff where you say, I can't have you in this house if you're going to be doing these drugs or having these risky behaviors and bringing that into our world. But I love you, but you can't do this to me or the kids that are still here.
2: There's healthy boundaries. But
0: if you're going to kick your kids out because they have a different political or religious view... From from you. If you cut them out of your lives because they disobey your command to be a Southern Baptist or United Methodist or a Catholic or whatever, you're going to...
2: Lose them forever. You're going to lose
0: them forever. And you're going to give them deep, deep wounds. Do you love your kids? Don't give them the deep, deep wounds. Now, <laughs> if
2: you've already done that, you can come to them. Yes. And apologize. Yeah, and
0: they might at first say, no, 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 I'm not having you back in my life, but I guarantee you there's at least a chance that they're going to have a, a little seed healing. and there's also i think sometimes a chance for some very strong and positive changes mm-hmm. people love it when that reconciliation can happen but more importantly if we fail in our task to teach students to think for themselves our kids to think for themselves i know it seems risky but if we fail to risk that risk since we think well they might leave our path we are going to put them in a spot where they are unable to think for themselves. And if they're unable to think for themselves and trust their judgments, this is what makes it possible for them to be further traumatized by other bad people in their lives. Right,
2: because they, they won't stop the people that are unhealthy for them. They might continue in those relationships. but So how does that fit in with the name of our camper truck?
0: Oh yeah, well, I want to make sure before we go to the break, I want to tell you. So we're in this truck called the uh, St. George... And St. George is from St. George and the Dragon, and it's from my belief, because we don't really know for sure, but one of the most common motifs uh, throughout the Mediterranean and into Europe for Christian cultures, all the way back to antiquity, is St. George and the Dragon. Now, there's a guy named George that was part of the military. There's a history to it. But the motif is really a mythological one. St. George, in the way that we think of the the dude killing the dragon, is not a real real story. (laughs) But it's the realest of stories. And that is, it represents what Jesus does to the Molech structure. St. George, I believe, was very meaningful to pagans, that had left paganism and came to Christianity because it showed them something. It said that Christianity is a religion where we no longer have to put our children out there and expose them to the monsters for a good harvest or for war or whatever. It was the end of that need to kill their children. And I think this is true because if you look at all of those fairy tales about the knight who comes in mm-hmm. and rescues the princess she's tied up and there's a dragon what is going on there why is the ti- the princess there and what's the dragon about <laughs> the dragon is Molech. the princess is the fair virgin beautiful child of the king or queen or somebody important and you say well what that's silly no it's not have you ever read go check it out friends go google theseus and the minotaur this is the story it's almost exactly uh, it, it's 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 basically you would see the story and say, Ah, they ripped it off from the Hunger Games. But mm-hmm. it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. The Hunger Games is playing off of this earlier thing. And in fact, Hunger Games is a great example of Moloch and or Molech and the and the way that
2: power you know?
0: requires the sacrifice of these children. It's that same theme. So Theseus and the Minotaur, the Minotaur being that that bovine beast, kind of like the false Yahweh mm-hmm. that I described on that piece of pottery, Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, this, this beast-like thing. And, and the Minotaur required human sacrifice as well. And every time we give in to that, we are failing to follow this way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus, for me, is symbolized by St. George and the Dragon. And I think I was mentioning this at one point, and somebody, I can't remember who it was, went to Jerusalem and got the St. George tattoo. Because in Jerusalem, one of the oldest tattoos for Christians and it was it's a christian tattoo shop it is one of the oldest continuous tattoo shops in the world mm. and and it was a way of them reminding themselves of that very reality of the overcoming of religion so in that sense jesus is not really representing a religion but is representing the slaying of religion molech power money empire all of that's religion be gone in the name of jesus after the break we're going to put more teeth into this. We're going to give you more practical ways of dealing with this through the research of Alfie Cohn. stacy has got this handled. She's got some notes and we're going to pass on that wisdom to you after the break. Don't go away. So for this segment, we are going to go right into addressing in depth a question from a listener named Phil. It's a very important question. It's right on track with what we're about. Here it is.
1: Hello, Malletsons. My name is Phil, and uh, I've enjoyed listening to your first episode. And uh, it made me kind of reflect on a couple of things and uh, one question. The first thing it made me reflect on is is my own upbringing and the way I experienced church um you know and i guess trauma is right is not it is the right word rather to use even when there is good intentions that doesn't mean that the situation wasn't traumatic and i i think i experienced that in in different forms of manipulation others experienced that as too as well in my church and um, later on meeting friends and having friends that or in churches where the manipulation was ten times worse was more sinful than the manipulation that I experienced, and um you know it's just, it was just heartbreaking to to know people that have experienced that, and then realize that that's it's not it's it's sad, but it's not an anomaly. The second thing I think about is that um it's very easy to become a part of the machine that's doing this, right? That you, I you know you I grew up. In this church, go up, grow up through the ranks in kind of a way, and um, you can kind of become a part of the machine. You realize that I can make a choice whether I want to, you know, to do what what I've seen others do, or and have that power, maybe, and have that recognition, that prestige, or I do something different. And I'm thankful that by the work of the the Word and Spirit, that God took me in this very messy way in another direction, but i what I know is that it's only by the grace of God right the saying there, but for the grace of God go I and and so I realized that it it and it is only for the grace of God that I did not turn into one of the people that that I didn't turn out to be a manipulator like the the manipulators that I grew up with, and then my last question my well my my question is. I am a future educator, music educator, and I I really do enjoy theology. And I I want to educate people in in this. And I I, not just even educate, but like proclaim the the message of the gospel that we are free. You are forgiven in Christ, proclaiming that. And then also teaching others you talked about just the lack of intrinsic desire to learn. We're not motivated and or even not even that we are. We want to learn but in our education system it is based on reward and punishment and not on building this intrinsic desire to learn and i want to know your thoughts on that what are the models that you're seeing where we're getting this right and as like i said as a future educator i i don't again i don't want to um to be comfortable in a system that is there where there is this Manipulation. That's really not, you know, freeing the mind. That's really not broadening the mind, but only like boxing it in, you know, it's not, um it's not giving a child knowledge or a student knowledge so they can gain more knowledge, but giving them, um, but giving, saying, okay, these are your, this is what you need to do so that you can perform your function. And that's not to say that that's bad. I think, I think that's good, like perform, like being good citizens. But like just going beyond, I, I don't know, just, um, just being a machine. Like how do we create, how do we help our students be critical thinkers and, um, and, and see beyond this world? Thank you again. Bye bye.
2: Wow, what a great question, right? <laughs> There's a lot there. So I hope that we can do it justice. I had been reading Alfie Kohn's book. He's the psychologist we referred to in our first episode. And I think that was a little bit of what even prompted some of Phil's questions, talking about intrinsic or extrinsic motivations. And I had been reading Alfie Kohn's Unconditional Parenting, Moving from Awards and Punishments to Love and Reason. So I realized he's perfectly suited to answer Phil's questions here or for me to be able to apply some of the, some of what I was reading in the book to Phil's questions.
0: And we'll adapt it a little bit to more of a question about how to do this in a religious context, but this can be for parenting
2: and discipline in
0: general, and certainly for those of us who are interested in being teachers.
2: One of the things that is mentioned also in the book is that it really doesn't matter when you're, when you're trying to teach or as, you know, as a parent or in the classroom or whatever, we have things that we want to convey to the students, but what really matters most is what they take home from the whole experience. Yep. It's what the learners learn. And I and that's going to be sort of the premise of this entire thing is that we want we care about what what are we actually teaching the children? What are they walking away with?
0: And if we if we offended some of you dear listeners last week by pushing some envelopes, we're not really trying to do that. What we're trying to do is ask what is that end game? As we started the show out, we said, if our end game is to save money, and we're spending a lot of money in casinos, mm-hmm. then then for whatever our good intentions, in terms of being frugal and minimalist and living in a truck camper, if we're actually spending a ton more on these other vices, mm-hmm. and I don't think... You know, gambling is always a vice, of course, because I I enjoyed betting on some football (laughs) last night. Even though I'm not watching football anymore, I can bet on an occasion. Mm -hmm. So we're not saying this in an absolute way, but there are definitely ways in which this business about understanding the end game and what our goal is will help us to be better teachers, parents, and friends.
2: And as Phil mentioned... Uh, and his and as he starts out his question, he mentions the machine. And that's a lot of what you were talking about with Moloch previously and how it's so easy to be a part of the machine. And, and we sometimes call it the system, mm-hmm. right? And,
0: Babylon, <laughs> Babylon,
2: absolutely. And how it's easy to sometimes just stay in that and you you can move up in power. And, and often what we have learned is we've learned from our examples and from the, our own teachers. And it's right. so easy to just kind of... It's easy to just do what they have modeled for us and not really think about whether, you know, <laughs> you don't always try to think of, a, is there a better way to do this, right?
0: It's especially a problem for professors and teachers and Sunday school teachers where we'll go to something, we'll say, that person's intelligent, they've got an education, they're successful, people like them. I'm going to uncritically appropriate or apply the way they are acting or way, the way they are teaching I do it quite often, and I feel bad about it when I do. I don't do it on purpose, but I'll say, I don't have time to research everything about today's subject. I'm going to go back to my undergraduate studies or a lecture I heard when I was in England. And a lot of good
2: things you can learn from folks. It's
0: not a bad way to start. But sometimes we need to then step back and mm-hmm. ask, what are the foundational principles behind what we're saying? And is it just that I'm appealing to this friend or authority Or do I really understand or believe in the basic principles that I'm setting forth for students?
2: and are we just sort of picking the easy way out because it, we there's money maybe that's a little easier to be had and you can move up to the top a little bit easier
0: well this is of course the biggest <laughs> yeah no i mean this is so difficult in our day i think we had already mentioned the idea that sometimes well earlier in the show we mentioned that money sometimes can control the mm, messaging absolutely. because we want to Stay employed, we want our schools and colleges and nonprofits to be successful. We want to be able to be part of the group of people that cares about the sorts of things we're talking about. And in all of that, it's it's entirely possible that these are good motivations, but it's also possible that we are we we've got blind spots there. Side note, friends, it's great recording in beautiful places in a truck camper studio. But there's one thing that happens little puppers she's like a little baby and she realizes sometimes that we're doing something without her and then she gets a little bit jealous Mm. and makes more noise. (laughs) She could be quiet for 12 hours and then all of a sudden she's now trying to get into a shot glass. She's a little bit of a lush. (laughs) Anyway, I'm sorry, Stacey. Take it away.
2: So as Phil had mentioned... Extrinsic motivation is a common method that has been used. It, it seems to be the way of, of Moloch or the system or the machine. And that's using, just as a recap here, some negative and positive reinforcement, basically to kind of keep people in mind, to get them to do what you want them to do.
0: It's what most people think you're supposed to do as a teacher or a parent.
2: Absolutely. And especially when you're trying, when you're trying to get—you maybe have 40 kids in a classroom, and you're trying to get through the material— and guess what it's a, those motivations actually are, they do work in the short term often the the hard part is is that it can it, it can also have damaging uh, some damaging effects intrinsically is what this research is showing
0: right are we talking about like fear of punishment hope of reward still carrot and stick sort of things yes
2: absolutely and there's a an, <laughs> kind of a good example of when um, we go to a Del Taco in Linwood. <laughs>
0: oh yeah! Now, friends, listen now, listen and listen. If me and Stacy are driving up I-15 between L.A. and Las Vegas, it is inevitable that we shall stop at Lenwood, which is near Barstow. It's we in could California, go, could go Linwood, to Barstow. California. Almost always Lenwood, L-E-N Wood, Lenwood. Lenwood. And that is a place where even if Stacy's not hungry, we are going to stop there. And what are we going to stop
2: <laughs> for? Del Taco.
0: It's one of the original Del Tacos. It's from the original dude who mm-hmm. was
2: it started Del Taco. If you, I don't know if you, it, Del Taco is primarily on the West Coast. Yeah, so. it's it's
0: moving out. Yeah, and it it was it was you know along with Taco Bell, and and then eventually the Midwest, I think, pick up picked up Taco John. But this, this is movement, not you know, any
2: old Del Taco. So people would say, "No, I'm
0: not just going to go to any old Del Taco." Now, listen, it, it's 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 got a weird history. If you if you really want to know the history of Mexican Mexican food in America, I beg you, please check out Taco USA by a really cool guy we know named Gustavo Ariano. He used to be the editor of OC Weekly, and he had a little uh, a little. Column called Ask a Mexican. We interviewed him. Dan and I uh, interviewed him on the Virtue in the Wasteland podcast. You can Google that or, or search those archives. But he he tells the story of this really interesting way in which Mexican food makes its way into America. And and as as much as there are some you know weird cultural appropriation issues, this guy isn't a bad guy at sea. He's, he's a he's a fun, nice guy, mm-hmm. and he's really sweet and when he is in town that place is almost too quick
2: oh you're talking about the owner of
0: del taco i'm talking about the owner of del taco i
2: thought you were still talking about
0: gustavo he was the no no gustavo no so goose if you want to know about all of the different interesting histories of tacos and tamales and and chili and tex mex it's a lot more interesting than than most people realize the different variations and the history of it but one of the pieces of the history is So there were a couple guys that really started to capitalize a few decades back on the fast food taco. And he's one of them, but eventually it became a chain. I
2: remember what the the wife of, of Taco Bell said: "This is never going to work." Yeah, right.
0: Yep. And then it's a big deal. <laughs> Why are you doing this? But the so
2: support your husband, or your or your, your wives, I, I mean, if they've got a project. I, mean, I guess. Anyway, yeah. maybe.
0: But the <laughs> but the but the Del Taco the Del Taco that you might know is a is a larger corporation now. It was purchased from the brand was purchased from this guy. And he was able to uh, re- and he was able to retain two stores, one in Barstow and one in Lenwood, Colorado, just down the road. No, um, Linwood, one California. with Lenwood, California, just down the road. And this is the original Barstow del Taco taco. You can get this flavor. it's a much bigger taco. I'm not saying it's the most. Gourmet,
2: and well, and the Del Taco that is in Linwood, they everything is is basically it's got fresher ingredients, like it's it's they're stuffed fuller, you know, it's it's way better version of it. So get
0: yourself a a Barstow carne asada burrito, <laughs> but we're not trying Barstow to sell Taco. advertisement
2: for. We Del get
0: Taco. <laughs> no money from that. I'm just trying to explain why I want to go to Tommy Burger there. If you go to the same spot, there's a Tommy Burger, which is is kind of famous. There's of course an In and Out, which mm-hmm. everybody wants to go to. Mm-hmm. All sorts of fun things, yes. But we do not go to any of those things. We
2: always go to Del Taco, and what the point with that is that it, it, for us, we have noticed that it is a it is a very obvious whether or not the owner is there. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's still the best Del he's Taco, no matter what. Doesn't matter. But if he, it's he's slower. not. He's often there, and when he is, this whole place is dialed in. It he is, will
0: bring you your taco before you sit down, and I want to use the, restroom, the kitchen's on fire. Like, I mean, in yeah. a good way.
2: It's all. It's clean. Everything is just. Totally in order. Everything, Tons of people. Everything's flowing through. Yes. And it's, it's, it, everything is like clockwork. It's just amazing to see it in motion.
0: Because he takes pride in this place. This place absolutely means something to him. And so he is intrinsically motivated to make sure that we have a wonderful experience.
2: And so we notice if he's not there, oh, the place is a little messier. Just a little the bit. The food's not quite on target. And it's always not too great. bad, Again, but always it's always great. good. Just but a little bit. we just bit see slower. that notch, you know, <laughs> a little notch down and we go, okay, he's not there. But that's a point to say, the the employees have a better work ethic while he's there, right? Or seem to than when he's not. Sure. We've noticed that a little that's bit. That's
0: true, almost every. And
2: that is sure that is that often is the case. And so again, it works for certain times. Your extrinsic motivation. I don't know what he's doing there. We but don't know his management in, style. Intrinsically, some of the employees aren't quite holding on to this ideal when when he's not around for whatever reason. Right. Um, or and at least
0: they give it 80%. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> and the other thing... Well, and I think everybody knows that. When the boss is coming into town, doesn't everybody, you know, make sure the place is a little make cleaner? Make sure you're sweeping,
1: and, doing something. <laughs> yep.
2: And, yep. And also another thing that with sort of the the way of the machine or the system and extrinsic motivation is, is that we live in a world of transaction. And that's one of the the big points that that, uh, Alfie Kohn makes. And, and we, and to quote him here, he says, in our society, we are taught that good things must always be earned, never given away. Indeed, many people become infuriated at the possibility that this precept has been violated. So sometimes even the subject of welfare Uh, or like you think about like free college education or free
0: school lunches, free hair.
2: Yeah. Healthcare, any of this stuff, it can get people really upset because that's just the way our world operates is in transaction. You earn the way our American society
0: tends to be right. Not, not everywhere, but certainly for us in the United States.
2: Right. And what, one of the things uh, that he he talks about is that in families that it, shouldn't be that way. Um, oh, I see. So everywhere, everywhere else, Everywhere else, outside, is transactional. Inside your family, though, you you don't want to have a culture of uh, unconditional love should be the default there.
0: Some people think, well, I've got to teach my kids, you know, about this, this dog-eat-dog world. Right. There's no free lunch. There is... Always, some obligation. There's something you some owe Transaction. Somebody. I mean, and this and, we'll, is, and
2: we're going to go on to explain a little bit more about the opposite. But this right. is definitely a huge aspect. And and unfortunately, it does infiltrate our families. Even when we were doing our marriage counseling, right? <laughs> do you remember? I do. <laughs> we were given a book that I I don't remember what it was called, but we went through with a. And basically, it was all about bank accounts, as if each of us have our own bank accounts. And it, it was more like emotional bank accounts or, or just whatever, I it guess. Was a re- just it was a
0: relational bookkeeping. A
2: relational bookkeeping. And so, if, if I did something nice for you, then I get a little credit in my bank account. If I did something bad, get a withdrawal. And, and we needed, you know, the... Quality of our marriage would be how big this positive, you know, like in the black we were in our right. accounts. And if
0: we were in the red, then <laughs> Not, we had trouble. If,
2: if we had, we I don't think we would be married. If we had actually taken that advice uh, no. to her, I know we wouldn't be married no, no, right no, 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 now no, 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 24 no. years later.
0: And, and and here's how this works, whether it's, you know, a relationship or economics or public policy. It is, as Stacy was alluding to. It is possible that a certain government program or social welfare program or tax break for struggling families or free lunches for poor families, these may be things that we can't f- practically afford, given whatever the right. public funds are. But I think what we, we want you to consider for yourself, dear listener, isn't the practicality of the politics. We'll let you work that out on your own. The question is, is there a part of your heart that makes you ver- that's very, very upset, that is deeply deeply offended by somebody getting something they don 't deserve
2: is that your default because yeah. i mean that 's what the world teaches it's,
0: us it 's giving us this, and again we 're not saying that there aren't complications to this. We are saying that that when somebody is furious, that somebody gets something nice that they don 't deserve. That is a sign of a kind of spiritual illness. Mm-hmm. I remember when we were we were looking at figuring out what to do in our own lives after the kids graduate. That's why one of the reasons we're in a truck camper trying to see if we can do this and enjoy it. And it's it's been very nice. But one of the things we wanted to do was to, uh, we've got these three acres down in San Diego County, and we want to be able to kind of just, you know, park there and have a little farm go in there, but then also take our vehicle and then go down by the beach, travel around, maybe see some sites, then make our way back to our our little farm. And so I Googled the question, where am I allowed to camp for free or park for free in my RV in San Diego? And there was a a gentleman who had a two-paragraph tirade about how people need to pay their dues, that there's no free lunch. Mm-hmm. People can't live for free. You have to play the game. And and this is an interesting thing. When we talk about Molech, it's not just that there is a system of competition and dues paying and all this. It's that once you've played into that game, once you enter into that game, people tend to become irate sometimes if someone opts out of it if somebody didn't pay their dues
2: well and i and i'm sure a lot of those people have struggled really hard
0: i'm sure they did yeah they
2: pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and that's sort of the you know it and you know they've had to struggle so So
0: then if if somebody does not it's not fair right right
2: i know that the one in me the the wanting justice to part you know i i can i can hear i can understand
0: stacy's enneagram you have to go back one episode to figure that out
2: but i can understand where that comes from I understand right. even if if I don't agree with it, one of the things that Phil brings up though is how building intrinsic motivation is super hard, and it, it it definitely does take a lot of work, but one of the things is once you put in the work, then guess what in the long run, it makes it easier because you aren't having to babysit you know you don't they if the motivations are internalized for folks then you don't have to watch them as much, be, you know, as, as if the Del Taco, you know, owner is always there, even when he's right. not. You know, is is how that place would operate.
0: Maybe some some of you think, "Well, look, O'Mallinson's acting and talking like a neo hippie," and I am. That may that may distract you from a reality that at a certain point in my life, I did all right with respect to administrative life, management, managing employees, and. One of the things I found is if you, first of all, hire people that have a commitment to the organization, they have something in themselves that wants this thing to succeed. Mm-hmm. It is so much less work
3: absolutely, than
0: finding somebody and just picking somebody too quickly, not interviewing them well, not doing your background checks, and then all of a sudden you've got somebody not on your hands that's more more work than than really you need and and in other words what i'm saying is getting two things right at the beginning are so important to management the first is finding the right people interviewing and hiring can solve almost all of your biggest problems you hire the right way and then you find a team you get the right people in the right places and you're all rowing in the same direction you can be a lot more successful as an organization or a business And the second thing is to get people to understand that you respect that part of them and that you value them as part of a team rather than a mercenary, right? They're not a mercenary or a hired hand. They are part of the team. And this isn't just a bunch of hoorah kind of uh, rhetoric. It is...
2: Yeah, this is their company too. It has to be. Yeah.
0: And once you get that, then you have a much better chance of having less stress along the way things can be as small as letting people have paper clips or or you know use the mail room with their stamps little little tiny things just giving them those dignities giving them i remember uh, tim preuss was a dean of humanities at concordia and i always loved going over into his office because they had sodas and (laughs) almonds and All sorts of fun things that you could grab in coffee. And it just said that he cared about the people that worked with him. And that, I guarantee you, gave me and anybody else that was interacting with him much more motivation than an extra 10% um, bonus on a day's work or something, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Like, maybe that would be fine and great, but the... And I'm not saying that you should bribe people with with tchotchkes. I'm saying no. that those little things that you do to signal that you care about them as people and that you're in this together and that they're intrinsically motivated is incredibly helpful for an organization.
2: Absolutely. And I know for my own self too, because I have done a lot of work with nonprofits and stuff. And one of the things that I've always appreciated is the fact that they understand that I am also a wife and a mother and that there are times when my kids might need things and stuff. And so there were... Sort of allowances that were made that you know grace filled times where, if I needed to take off early, you know to take my my son to' his orthodontist appointment and things like that, that they made allowances for that stuff, and I always thought that was just super helpful for my own morale you know
0: and and this is the key that you would also work past the,
2: <laughs> that's you know, six true. o'clock yeah that's true once wor- once, once you much, had yeah. that
0: well no, but I mean that's a side issue, yes. but it wasn't as if. Those kindnesses weren't
2: they were they were repaid, they were but you weren't, but yeah. you
0: weren't repaying it As consciously. It wasn't
2: transactionally. It
0: wasn't transactionally. You were committed yeah, to doing a good job.
2: Yeah, and I, to move us along here, Alfie Cole makes a really good point here about intrinsic motivation. I am going to read a, something he says here. "Quote: There is a big difference, after all, between a child who does something because he or she believes it's the right thing to do, and one who does it out of a sense of compulsion." Ensuring that children internalize our values isn't the same thing as helping them to develop their own, and it's diametrically opposed to the goal of having kids become independent thinkers. Most of us, I'm convinced, do indeed want our children to think for themselves, to be assertive, and to, and morally courageous when they're with their friends.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. We
2: hope that they'll stand up to bullies, resist peer pressure, particularly when sex and drugs are involved, but if it's important to us that kids not be victims of others' ideas, we have to educate them to think for themselves about all ideas, including those of
0: adults, this end what, quote. <laughs> yeah, this is what Stacey and I were talking about most of the summer, mm-hmm. was that if you don't take this kind of educational perspective seriously, what's going to be the backfire is that when you're not around to give the kids this extrinsic motivation as a teacher or a parent then when somebody else becomes the authoritarian person in their life, they're going to follow them. Mm -hmm. And it could be to their great harm.
2: Absolutely. Including their, you know, their...
0: Their spouse, their their boyfriend, their boss, their cult leader.
2: There's a story that comes to mind when I was in middle school and I was spending the night at a friend's house and it was basically two of us were spending the night at our other friend's house. There's three of us total. The the gal's house that we were staying at, she's a stepbrother... And a few of his friends were over as well. They were, we were in middle school. They were in high school, so they were already able to drive and stuff. and And they were had been drinking, and they were gonna go cow tipping. <laughs> I don't. I never ended up going t- cow tipping, even though that was something I guess people did back in the day.
0: Did you ever go out pretending to cow tip? I, <laughs> yeah, I, I never like, actually tipped a cow. We'd, yeah, we'd we're gonna we would go just cow cow tipping. drive yeah, out into the fields.
2: But anyway, so they were going to go cow tipping, and the pressure was on us to join them, and I refused. I was like, they've been drinking, they're way older than me, and I I don't want to leave my friend's house. Like, I just didn't think it would be good news for us. And
0: That's a parent's dream. Good job.
2: (laughs) Well, and it was interesting because the friend who, it wasn't her house, but was also spending the night, later pulled me aside and thanked me and said, you know, that she just didn't have the guts. To say no, but she really didn't want to go. She felt bad about it.
0: Was this friend a member of the Seventh-day Adventist church?
2: Uh, the friend's house that we were at.
0: That was hers. It
2: was hers. Was she going to go? She wanted to go.
0: I'm not putting her down. She's a wonderful young lady. And I'm not putting down Seventh-day Adventists right here. <laughs> I am just saying that I do know that her religious upbringing was less free in terms of that question mm-hmm. of of personal intrinsic investigation Versus a more authoritarian Sunday school style. Mm -hmm. Although in their case, it was a Saturday school style, right?
2: Oh, yeah, that's true. Friends,
0: if you're not a Seventh day Adventist, I need you to understand Saturday school for the rest of us Protestants is the breakfast club, right? It is you got in trouble at school and now you have to come in on Saturday morning for detention. But if you are a Seventh day Adventist, it's Saturday morning when you're actually doing your your church stuff, Absolutely. your your religious yeah. stuff. But again, she didn't even really have any any mechanism to say we shouldn't do this.
2: Correct. And then the the one the gal that pulled me aside just for whatever it's worth, she was Catholic. The uh-huh. one that couldn't stand so up so the on Catholics. Her
0: C plus in personal <laughs> she, <laughs> in personal autonomy. She
2: didn't want yeah, she didn't want to go but couldn't really stand up for herself. But also I, I would attribute to her household, it was very much sort of power based. We're not gonna discuss things and and whenever she would get in trouble it was like ooh, I'm I'm gonna call your father kind of thing. Yeah. And and so she learned that it's best not to rock the boat.
0: So as long as she doesn't get caught and dad's not mad that they go cow tipping, then she needs to just be careful not to tick off the older kids right. who are now the authority figures. Yep, This is the whole it's point the whole of authoritarian thing. personality yep. and authoritarian structures. Well, good for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're yeah. you're I
3: mean, here with me. I'm still
0: here. Yes, and less and traumatized nothing, nothing, by yeah, either probably. animal cruelty or worse, but yeah.
2: <laughs> right. And so we're going to start to get into a little bit of... I think this all applies to Alfie Kohn's idea of understanding conditional versus unconditional parenting. Conditional parenting uses the tactics of extrinsic motivation. So that's po- it, it's negative and positive reinforcement for behavior.
0: Fear of punishment, hope of reward, carrots and sticks.
2: And that is conditional parenting. Right. Unconditional parenting, on the other hand, is, it develops intrinsic motivations. And it's love no matter what you do. He goes on to say, quote, there's a distinction between loving kids for what they do and loving them for who they are. The first sort of love is conditional, which means children must earn it by acting in ways we deem appropriate or by performing up to our standards. The second sort of love is unconditional. It doesn't hinge on how they act, whether they're successful or well behaved or anything else. To really drive home conditional parenting, probably the most obvious example of that is authoritarian parenting.
0: Okay. And
2: I'll explain what that is through a quote of, uh, of Alfie Combs. He says, quote, such parents are more strict and demanding than they are accepting and encouraging. So just to be clear, conditional parenting basically is about what, what the kids do. Unconditional parenting is for who is who they are, is you're focusing on who they are. So those are the two d- distinctions.
0: And in many ways, you're not just saying who they are as handsome or, or lovable in some tangible way. You're saying that you love them because they're your kids. Just,
2: you, just because. You love them
0: because they're your students. You love them because they're part of the human family, that we're all in this together.
2: And I, I'd argue that it is every human being's right to be loved unconditionally by their parents. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. Right, But that's what, I mean, we all deserve, we all deserve the unconditional love.
0: We certainly all need it. And... From our folks. We, we should love everybody unconditionally. What we're talking about here, though, is that we have a unique responsibility when we bring children into the world or when we are teachers or leaders in some way, that the people that we're charged with, we need to make sure that we are not shirking our duty there To love them unconditionally, especially, as you say, in a world that very rarely even is nice to you uh, unconditionally, you know, in any way. The idea is, what can you do for me? As opposed to, you know, how can we love each other with this mutual gift giving?
2: Right. And it's also important to, and again, as I mentioned before, you might love your children, or I might, you know, love my children unconditionally, but what do they, do they internalize that? Do they see it as that? Because unfortunately, sometimes the way that we interact with them, they're not going to pick up on that message. And instead, they're going to hear a little bit of a different message. And there was a a time in our own lives where we realized that we, you know, kind of think like, oh, with our kids, we've, spent all of this time bringing them up, you know, we buy them food, we, you know, they have a great education, we, you know, and then we're like, there's times when we, we say, well, you, can't you just do this for me? Can't you, you know, there's a, an example. that I, I forget <laughs> what the exact
0: ex- <laughs> example was with Aiden, but I do remember that Augie helped us understand it. There was something that I wanted Aiden to do for me, and I really, really needed him to do it. I don't know if it was help me on something that was technological, maybe I needed him to... Play a little piano for the opening to this (laughs) podcast.
2: Which we did put a little piece of him playing, but he didn't know I was recording. Yeah,
0: (laughs) but but the the idea was, could you do this for me? Or maybe it was take out the trash. I don't know. But it was you know look at all these things we've done for you. I'm your father. You owe this to me, and that didn't work. Yeah. But then when we we realized that the that the better way was to say, I'm in great need, and. I'm going through a lot right now, son. Would you please do this for me? Because that's what people do for people in need. Would you do this because you're a decent person? And then it was, well, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So he helped me out, but he didn't help me out. And he didn't help me out when I was even using that conditional Mm -hmm. things. I don't owe you this. Or maybe he thought he did and it was just dreary. But when it was... When the question was changed to who does he want to be, what kind of person does he want to be, and regardless of whether I'm his biological father or not, which actually gets in the way a lot of times for people, just because somebody is biologically related to you doesn't mean they get to boss you around. Right. When it's a matter of, be- of basic human decency, then that changed the conversation.
2: Absolutely. Perhaps some of the most extreme form of conditional parenting is authoritarian parenting, and Alfie Kohn has a he shares with us here in this quote a little bit more about that. Quote: Such parents are more strict and demanding than they are accepting and encouraging. They rarely offer explanations or justifications for the rules they impose. It's the, <laughs> do as I say, because, you know, that kind of thing. Because like, I it, said just so. Just because I said so.
0: It seems like that's an, a common and innocuous thing, and it's it's not, it's, according to Cohn. He's no, saying, no, he's no saying, because I said so is one of the worst things that you can say. Absolutely. Because you need to be able to give them the logic behind it.
2: So they can internalize the reason for doing it.
0: Pretty much the whole reason that i wrote the book sexy the quest for erotic virtue in perplexing times available on available on amazon you contributed to it but the the reason i did that is not immediately obvious i'm not really interested in nagging kids about their sexual lives what i was trying to get to was a retranslation or a reframing of the connection between the way of jesus and sexual ethics. It wasn't that I was saying that you should be a moral person sexually because you would get in trouble because God's going to be mad at you or your parents are going to be mad at you. It's the question of who do I want to be? If I love somebody, how do I want to treat them? If I believe in unconditional love, how do I consider the longevity of my relationships and by doing it that way, by rethinking the backstory or more importantly, what
2: can I do? What can I get away with? Or yeah. what's the, Can I touch this? Can I touch that? No, it, that's all of the wrong questions.
0: Yeah. The question is, and, and in many ways, the thing that really stimulated that, that research in that book was that there were people that were getting in trouble in universities that were non-religious because they did not follow the, the basic protocols of consent which is very very important and there were kids that were getting kicked out of christian schools bible colleges universities for doing things that were otherwise seen that, that otherwise would not be seen as immoral or illegal in the world at large but were against the traditional teachings of that church tradition but in both cases It seemed to me that these poor young people in secular schools and in church-related schools were both dealing with a big problem, and that is nobody was talking about love. Mm. Nobody was being romantic. Nobody knew how to flirt. Nobody knew how to hold hands and find the joy in that really cool, youthful experience. Instead, it was all (laughs) <laughs> so clinical. It's like right. let's. Fi- so of course you want to be respectful and non coercive. That's one of the most important things in the world for a sexual relationship. But the there's idea so that that's yeah. yeah, that as long as you've got that, no, there's hearts that are broken because of a transactional form of relationships. Full stop. in in, in, in any Christian, non Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, whatever. It doesn't matter what your religious tradition is if you are treating people as means to an end in your sexual and romantic lives, that's a romantic hell that Absolutely. you're both in. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to set people free from that. And so this is kind of fitting, I think, with with what this, what this research that Alfie Cohn brings mm-hmm. says. And it's important, again, not just for sexual ethics or other behaviors for families, but it's just life in general, success in or flourishing in life.
2: Mm-hmm. To continue this quote on authoritarian parenting, he says, They not only expect absolute obedience and use punishment freely to obtain it, but also believe it's more important for children to comply with authority than to think for themselves or express their opinions. They insist that kids need to be carefully monitored, and when a rule is broken, which just confirms their dark suspicions about what children are really like, authoritarian parents tend to assume the child deliberately chose to break it irrespective of his or her age, and now must be held accountable. Disturbingly, these same themes of subservience to the demands of the parents and an early suppression of impulses not acceptable to them show up in a classic World War Two research project that was designed to explore the psychological underpinnings of fascism and, in particular, the childhoods of individuals who grow up hating whole groups of people and seem to be infatuated with power.
0: I guess what you're saying, Stacy, along the lines of Cohn here, is that if you have the authoritarian parenting style, you're making your babies Nazis. <laughs> okay. <man. laughs> well, right. I mean, that's a little, a little extreme. extreme. But it is But it's
2: the basis of it yeah. that could then, you know, if, if those are the values that they keep internalizing, then maybe that can then lead them down that path.
0: It's certainly harder to oppose fascism if you're a kid who grew up learning that you should obey authorities unquestionably right. i put this into a chapter i did on a on a book chapter that i wrote on scientology and one of the things i was saying is that for the most part it's very unlikely i don't i think these days for somebody to run into a scientologist on the street it's just not something that happens all the time you might find a jehovah's witness on the street i'm not even sure i've seen a hari krishna much lately <laughs> you know so there's It's not that common. There aren't that many Scientologists. They actually inflate their numbers. So the reason I mentioned that was that the exercise in studying Scientology is important not so much to avoid its particular pitfall, Mm -hmm. but... Because Scientology represents a perfect example of the ways in which authoritarian, uh, authoritarian psychology plays into religious groups, especially what we call cults. One of the great examples of this is that in the section of this chapter I wrote on the ethics of Scientology, I pointed out that for somebody to go against the religion, Scientology in this case... They are, by definition, doing something evil. And I was, I was, as I was writing it, I realized how perfect the, the logic was. Right. If Scientology is saving humanity from its own destruction, then even if it makes a mistake here and there, or if L. Ron Hubbard or David Miscavige or something does something bad, if in fact the technology of Scientology, if the mythology, if the the story and the and the work that they're doing is going to save the planet and liberate human beings, then any time that you are doing something to bring down Scientology... It is by definition bad. So if the Scientologist does something bad and you complain about it in public, you are actually doing something worse because now you are defaming an organization that's saving the world.
2: Which is actually, I mean, that's the same exact thing that we talked about, I think, in episode two when we were talking about why people don't report. Yeah. Because they believe in the mission, they believe in the cause, and if, if if they're traumatized or been a victim of of a situation, they're afraid to speak out because then the whole great cause of the church or the organization or whatever might, might be undermined.
0: Yeah. Now, ultimately, as we've said before, it doesn't work that way. If you keep protecting the bad stuff, it'll be worse for your organization. But if you go the other way and say, the ability for people to come out of these things actually liberated is the end game, Mm -hmm. then when you find people that are able to challenge authority in a respectful way, that means you've done it right. I mean, just to stick with Scientology for a second, because I did a lot of research on that recently, the thing that attracts people to it is the idea of liberation.
2: <laughs>
3: Which right, is,
0: right, and and the crazy. idea is yeah, it's it's it is not a Sometimes religion. Sometimes the even.
2: very thing that people sell is the opposite. It's exactly of the opposite, but they'll they'll get. get you. They'll say that that church called Grace has the least amount. of
0: great. Sometimes, you know, yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes. Ah. But, the, but the thing, like, for, for people that I interviewed that had gotten into Scientology, they were tired of religion. And so they said, I don't want a religion. I want something that's more like science. I want something that's more reliable. I want something that's not going to tell me how to think. It's going to actually open my mind up and it's going to set me free to think. And that was what they were sold. Mm. And they ended up not doing that at all and actually finding themselves having to become uncritical.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. And the research that Cohen brings out in his book, it, it, it talks about even how not only is the power-based approach just not—it's ineffective, but it's damaging even when it appears to work. So it might have the appearance of working, but instead, the powerlessness—it it generates like really intense anger, and
0: in the in the the disciple or the student
2: right and often then it, that will bubble up and come out somewhere the lay down the law parenting styles uh, make kids end up being sneakier. And he mentions the example of Eddie Haskell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Eddie
0: Haskell, friends, was from... It to Beaver. Yeah, he was the kid who looked really good to the parents, but behind the scenes was actually the bad kid.
2: Yeah, and that's the sort of thing where every time, you know, that, that when the parents turn their back, the kids are hooligans. You know, you've seen some of those kids.
0: Well, I especially have seen some of these kids. They're called PKs and MKs. Pre- <laughs> pre- Preacher's kids and missionary kids. Not every child of a pastor or a missionary is naughty, but there is this way in which pastors have this unfortunate and sometimes unhealthy obligation to make it look like their families are well behaved for the brand. Mm -hmm. And I won't get into them, but there's a couple Bible verses that make people think that this is, you know, really important. And what it does is it means that there are these, these kind of two lives that the, the families live. When they're out at Disneyland in another state, they might be a normal family, but when they're on stage, when they're part of this big show, they have to look really, really good. And I've joked about this. I actually joked about this at a conservative conference that I was at with kids and parents, and I said to kids, don't date a meth head biker to rebel against mom and dad. <laughs> if you're a young lady, go ahead and come home with a collar and say that you're ordained as a, a priestess in the Episcopal Church or something. And that will be far <laughs> more <would> effective. <laughs> They'll be really angry, but no one's going to get hurt. Maybe less
2: destructive, <laughs> yes. I mean, oh, even wow. if you
0: just did it for Halloween or maybe April Fool's.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and also to that point, I remember when the kids were little, that we our kids yeah when our kids were little I remember that because they used to have like there was Lord of the Rings was a big thing back then and and so the the swords were, and then we of course we have always had them watch Star Wars and they had lightsabers and things when we would do play dates and have kids that ha- uh, weren't allowed to have weapons at all in their house yes they would immediately find those things and and have this odd like preoccupation with them mm-hmm. and I would immediately kind of identify those kids and say, oh, you know, and like, let's go, let's go outside. You know, I think I want to honor their parents' wishes. And so I would, you know, find a way to distract them from those toys and let's go outside and things like that. It became really apparent to me that those kids didn't have exposure to those toys and had a, a more intense and fa- a fascination with it.
0: Yeah. As opposed to what I think Cohn would say is, let's sit down with our kids and talk about war let's talk right. about violence right and and, and why when are, if ever it should be used, and if it shouldn't be used, then we're not saying this is some wonderfully sexy taboo, this well, toy and, gun or this toy sword, but rather this is something that that carries a serious heavy history behind it,
2: yeah, and, and, and who do we want to be? what side if, are we on? if they ever accidentally got their hands on a a real gun and had that same fascination, mm-hmm. I mean who knows anyway i I just that was definitely something. I picked up Jeff on. and
0: Stacy are not advocating for violent toys. <laughs> Absolutely not. We got all soft lately. But we're we are saying that having a genuine conversation with students and kids about these themes can actually create a deep understanding and a long-term commitment in this case maybe to peace.
2: Yeah. I think this all goes along with your research of virtue theory.
0: Yeah, I mean the the thing that people n- never seem to have gotten over the last seven years of me really spending time on this is that I'm not interested in being a goody two shoes. <laughs> I am rough around the edges, a cuss. I'm not worried about following all these rules, but that's precisely what I mean. Mm-hmm. Virtue theory is about developing a certain kind of character, a certain kind of internalized s- set of values, heroic values, for ourselves and the people we love so that we can respond nimbly to new situations, new ethical situations that it's not really maybe clear-cut what the answer is. And virtue theory is basically the idea that instead of memorizing a set of duties or laws, trying to develop the skills and the personality that will be able to immediately respond in a way that fits with what they want to be. So in the case of a follower of Jesus, for instance, somebody who has faith, hope, and love, or even more importantly, in terms of the precise external ethic, Micah 6 8, an Old Testament text that says it's important to do justice and mercy and love mercy and and to walk humbly. And to walk humbly. So humility, justice, and mercy, these are more important for the prophets, for instance than making sure you've got all the sacrifices and the rituals down. You can have all that done, and you can be a bad person. And of course, as as Jesus comes on the scene, whether you're a Christian or not, you've got to recognize that Jesus is pretty amazing when he comes along and says, all that religious legislation has some important context to it. But for us, what's important is having our internal selves cleaned, It's not what's on the outside of the cup. It's what's on the inside Inside. of the cup. You, he says to the Pharisees, are like whitewashed tombs. You're all pretty and white on the outside. On the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. And that, to me, is not just a minor issue. It's not just something where I'm saying, eh, maybe this is the way to do ethics. No, I think for our world today, we are in a, a tricky time. I think it's a hopeful time because more and more as we have met with young people in our travels, we are delighted to find how wise they are, wiser than many of the old people we know. And they are genuine mm. and they're caring and they're loving and they're sometimes misguided. I get it. But they have taught us so much, but they, what, but they don't spend a lot of time on the rules. Maybe the kids you know are, are naggy. I'm saying the kids that I know and they're... 30, you know, but they, but they have inspired me through a certain kind of heroic commitment to virtues, virtues that include justice and mercy, Mm -hmm. even if, as we'll talk about in a future episode, they no longer identify with the religion of their youth. And I'm not sure...
2: Authenticity and yeah, That's part of it, I think.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure how they got there, mm-hmm. but I know that it's really helped their lives. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, I trust them more than a lot of people. I'd hire them more than most people. I'd hire a kid who internalized virtues far more than the Eddie Haskell type that <laughs> knows the rules and also therefore knows how to go around the rules right.
2: well, and, 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 and again, how to not get and, caught. And again, that authenticity piece, because you know exactly who they are. They're not they're not making that up. They're not BSing you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you know, their, you know their motivations. Phil, what we're trying you know? to say to
0: you here, if, 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 we're, if we're losing you, Phil, what we're saying is that when you're teaching in any capacity, if it's music, education, Sunday school, or just, just anybody that you meet, helping people to identify what they want to be and helping them get the tools to develop those, those characteristics. When exactly a year ago, Dan Van Voorhis and I traveled to to visit a guy named Christian Miller who wrote a book called The Character Gap and interviewed him on this theme. One of the things I found really interesting was that he said that there was this concept of virtue labeling where you tell somebody, you are beautiful, you are a scholar, you are... Well, no, he said virtue labeling, where you say, you're somebody who values other people. You're a kind person. And they start to act in that way.
2: To take this point further, Cohn's research reveals that authoritarian parenting and religion often go hand in hand. Yeah. He says, quote, there's no denying that an authoritarian approach has deep roots in certain religious belief systems, says one expert. Breaking the child's will has been the central task given parents by successive generations of preachers whose biblically based rationales for discipline have reflected the belief that self will is evil and sinful. And that goes back to when we talked about our shame and guilt and, and the orkiness, right?
0: Yeah, are we are we elves? Yes. Do we sometimes get twisted into being orcs? Perhaps, yes. (laughs) But that idea of what our true self is, is really important. And to see a child or a student as essentially evil is both an error in Protestant theology and also a detrimental concept for education in general. So the idea then is, as we talked about on that show, that if we tell young people that they are essentially disgusting, gross monsters, mm-hmm. and if we think of them as disgusting, gross monsters, it's going to disrupt the health of our educational experience across the board. Right. From the parents to the teachers to the kids. And and you just have to go back. You have to keep digging into this. We can't defend ourselves here other than to, to point you to episode, uh, the episode we did on shame and And guilt guilt and the shadow self. But, but ultimately, if you take our word here for a moment, it is not even for a Protestant Christian, theologically appropriate to think this, but it is certainly not acceptable or healthy in a practical way Mm -hmm. for the way that we, on a day-to-day basis, interact with young people.
2: If we make the assumption that they're primarily orcs. Or evil. Or evil or evil, when they do something that a bad behavior that we don't like, our assumption is they meant to do bad, they meant to do evil, when they misbehave, we automatically construe it as if they are trying to, you know, either put chaos into our lives or, you know, so it's very important that we also as as parents or educators, when we see misbehaviors that we also have we have the discussion with them to kind of figure out the source of it and not just assume that just them being bad is the point
0: if we think they're just bad then when we spank them we say basically you know this hurts me more than it hurts you and we mean it because we're thinking, hey, there's like this devil that we're trying to drive out of them. Right. By whacking their butts, which, again, doesn't <laughs> and work. And <they> you might completely <laughs> yeah.
2: misunderstand why they're getting spanked. And it might be that they they came home dirty because they got in a fight defending their friend. And right. now they're just getting in trouble for being filthy when they were supposed to be ready for pictures.
0: Or... Let me put this into technical terms, friends. <laughs> That'll jack up a kid's mind. <laughs> yeah, When they do the right thing as heroes, and now they're in trouble. Yeah.
2: And Cone goes on further to say... Sometimes the love is used to justify a grim process of forcing the child to capitulate. Further, while many religious people equate the idea of unconditionality with aspects of their faith, a case could be made, drawing on the holy books of Christianity and Judaism, that the deities in these religions offer the ultimate inconditional love. Both the Old and New Testaments repeatedly promise extravagant rewards for those who are properly reverent and horrific punishments for those who aren't. God loves you if and only if you love him, and in some cases, if you meet various other criteria.
0: This is why this is so important to us. That's, that whole business about that conditionality of God is what Martin Luther called the theology of glory. And I have been saying in the last few months that I'm increasingly convinced that a bad theology leads to bad mental health and susceptibility to ongoing traumatization. And this is where it comes in. Yes, because this is how
2: you're interpreting what the Bible's saying.
0: I am not denying uh, two things. I'm not denying that many people read the Bible this way. Definitely a lot of religious people think of it this way and preach it this way. That's oh, for we've, sure. We've been seeing that we've, a lot. We've lived it. We've lived <laughs> yes. it. Yes. And so and so, if you say, well, that's not true. That's not what the Bible's about. Fine. But tell that to all the kids who heard it that way. Tell that to all the preachers that preach it that way. And, and We
2: were recently watching a local channel, and that's all it was. It is interesting. all of the preaching yeah. on TV and the public television. Terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. And the signs, the billboards. That's what they're saying. Yeah. All the crosses were going across
0: now, the interstate. and I hate... Have your little sprinkle of wrath there friends but goodness as i'm as I'm flipping through all these channels now, the nice thing, friends, is if you have an r v you get a little uh little terrestrial television you get you get your antenna. I was shocked to know you can find a lot of free t v you get your q v c you get your you know you get people selling you stuff, and a whole bunch of religion and as a dude who studied theology his whole life, moi. It's not interesting. It's horrifying. <laughs> yeah. You know, so we're sitting here writing and thinking about and reading and podcasting about religious education. And we're watching religious education. And, and I'm just watching these studio audiences of children. And it, I'm not going to mince words. It's kind of abusive what they're saying. Mm-hmm. But when they go home and, and they grab themselves a warm milk <laughs> <laughs> or a cocktail, and and pat themselves on the back. I know that they think that they're doing the right thing for well, the most part.
2: And yes, and so but when it's terrifying. So when going to church or reading the Bible or, or Christianity is that theology of glory and it's conditional about, love? And well, and, it, and it's about are you going to end up in heaven or hell? That's often what it is. And heaven or hell
0: into. is gonna be based on whether you, you were step good or in bad. line. Yeah. And
2: and so it's no wonder that some parents do more of the conditional based parenting. They they are so afraid of hell for their children. Yeah. They want so badly for them to be in heaven. Right. But they think like this is how this is how it's done.
0: If and... that's how God works, why should mom and dad not work that way as well? Better get with the system sooner than later. Maybe and this is the sad part. There's so many parents that at a certain part of them, they really want to be softies. Yeah, but but they they feel
2: like that's their job. Yeah,
0: they feel like they're being sinful. And so they brag. I see people bragging about how I don't let my kids get away with stuff and I whack them and I put their heads in buckets of ice. And they brag about it because they think that the alternative would be to be permissive and then let their kids become monsters. Right. And go to hell.
2: Which, by the way... Being permissive is absolutely not an aspect of unconditional parenting, as we will we'll will discuss in here in a minute. I do want to mention that as much as the Bible does get misconstrued. Jesus actually does say, repay evil with good. It's yes. a different message. Yes,
0: I should have mentioned this. So in the Old Testament, you have what's the called a... The a, you have tooth a, for a tooth. That's that Hammurabi's code. You've got, let's say, you know, obey your parents, so you'll be able to prosper in the land. There are these conditional statements in the Hebrew texts. You have this idea of what's called a suzerain vassal treaty. In the Near East, the ancient Near East you would have a lord who would take on a vassal. So you'd have a suzerain or lord that would take on a vassal, and they would establish a covenant or a document, a contract that says, here are some stipulations. If you do what is listed out here, then I will protect you, and when there's a famine, we'll have storehouse of of grains for you, and if there's a war, we'll all work together and, and fight. It's like the feudal system. And... That's in there. And in many ways, that the, the, the Old Testament contains many texts where God, Yahweh, acts like a suzerain and establishes a conditional arrangement mm-hmm. with Israel. But there are also, that would be like a, 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 a covenant with stipulations. But we don't have time to get into it, but there are moments where you will see a gracious, unconditional relationship there as well but certainly we're dealing with not so much individuals but we're dealing with the nation of Israel when you get however to Jesus Jesus is revolutionary because he does throw this all on its head the the sermon on the mount is a whole exercise in this you've heard it said blank but i'm going to tell you this you've heard it said that you should you know repay evil with evil and as you quoted I'm telling you, repay evil with good. Bless mm-hmm. those who persecute you. Mm-hmm. Turn the other cheek. Yes. Love unconditionally. That's the whole message. Yes.
2: So one one last point here to make about conditional parenting is that there are even smaller ways that we might be using conditional parenting because most of all, he, as he mentions in this book, most all parenting advice is conditional parenting. And so things like time out, that's that can still be construed to the child as conditional parenting. Right. People it's like a it's... love withdrawal kind of situation where you think, Oh, I I'm bad, I you know, now you have to go over here in this corner. You might un- you might understand it that you still love the child, but they might be interpreting it as I they don't I'm not good enough to be in their presence or, you know, they might you know, so it becomes like also a tit for tat kind of thing i did this and so i get my time out you know that kind of thing
0: that's the primary relationship and discipline and he says you've read me a few parts of it that are really important he says some people think it's a, a question of am i going to be focusing on punishment or positive reinforcement am i going to spank or putting him put him in time out but he's saying anything that's transactional, even, anything that's conditional. Even
2: positive re- reinforcement of good job, Johnny, for swinging on the swing or you know, anything yeah. like that can sometimes still be what I have done, not who I am. I often see in families where there's a child that maybe perhaps is really good at academics and then another one who's really good at athletics. And and then they get all the praise in those areas. And it's like if there's another child, they have to figure out, well, what is going to be my thing? Because I can't do athletics as well as my older brother or sister. And, you know, and I'm certainly not as smart as as this other one. What's going
0: to be my ticket to love?
2: Yeah. And so even when we're praising sometimes it can have an adverse effect on either the children you know other children that are paying attention or even the child that's getting praised for that they might feel like i'm only as you know i'm only good if as long as my football team is winning or that i'm the number one the number one quarterback right, right. when i have to sit on the bench ooh, you know i may not get loved anymore
0: extreme you know? praise for performance can that I? isn't coupled at least with a genuine understanding that you love that kid no matter what.
2: Can sometimes put undue pressure on the children to perform or try to continue to perform.
0: Very often. It will.
2: Very often puts undue pressure on the child to keep performing or that's their only where they find their worth, which is obviously not the message I think that most often parents want to convey. So we have to think about these things.
0: Unless, and this goes back to the question from the listener, they are so part of the system that they are themselves Mm -hmm. just teaching their kids what it's like to be part of that system. Probably at work, that's what the system tells them it's all about. So yeah, I guess that's how it goes. And so if you can't be a safe haven for your kids, for your spouse, for your elderly parents, anybody in your life, in your close circles, if you can't be that unconditional loving presence, then they might not have anywhere else in their world that they can feel and experience that healing, peace-giving, life-giving, flourishing, loving presence of unconditionality and non-transactional relationship.
2: As we move into now a little bit more of what unconditional parenting does look like, Cohn says, quote, unconditional parenting insists that the family ought to be a haven, a refuge from such transactions. In particular, love from one's parents does not have to be paid for in any sense it is purely and simply a gift it is something to which all children are entitled and that i mean that's basically also what jesus was talking about with unconditional love right mm-hmm. agape that's
0: the the greek word agape yeah unconditional love that's the divine style of love
2: and that should be the basis of our parenting and when we're as educators when we're dealing especially in in a, at a church or a sunday school this is this is the love Jesus talks about. This is this should be the approach. If we want to foster intrinsic values and in them owning their own faith, this is the approach that we will we will take.
0: Well, what does this look like? Let me tell you what this looks like. <laughs> it looks very specifically like this. If you've got kids, let's say you're a Sunday school teacher and you've got kids that don't agree with you. Do you withhold love? Right. Do you withhold love? You can still disagree with them. I'm not telling you... Do to, you start
2: to kind of even yeah. think in your head? Do you start judgment? Is that there in the back behind it?
0: Or do you start to ignore them? Do you only praise and spend time with the kids that act and sound exactly like you act and sound? Or are you giving these young people freedom to be themselves, okay, within reason, they're not hurting anybody, but you love them even if they're not doing it the way you want them to do it? That's a very non-worldly, if you want to use old school religious ways of thinking, It's a non-worldly way of approaching your love for people in your lives.
2: And the hard part about being somewhat prescriptive here is that everybody, every child is different. And the situations that you're going to find yourself in are all different. And, and, and it's not like a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. But I do have nine practical things that you can do to help create this culture home, that because is based I'm, in unconditional love.
0: Because because before you get to these, I want to say that, that both Stacey and I, as we're reading through this, she's reading most of it, but then every once in a while, she'll read a quote from the Cone book, and I feel a little bit bad. I will say that of all the things we've done stupid in our lives... For some reason our kids turned out all right. <laughs> and one of the one of the things I realized is that even though we were imperfect at it, we accidentally, or maybe because we intuitively knew that this was the way to go, we really tended towards Cohn's approach of treating kids like they were people and loving them for who they are, loving them regardless of whether they agreed with us. Just one example before you take it home is there was a time when we were driving to church in our minivan in Colorado Mm. and our youngest didn't want to go. And he said, I'm not going in. Mm. And I said, well, fine, you can stay in the van and think about what it's going to be like, you know, you go to hell with all the other people who don't go to church. (laughs) And I was being facetious. Right. And the rest of the family knew I was facetious, but Augie, our oldest said, uh, hey, dad, F you. Now, he must have been 12 at the time, maybe younger. And I I was so proud of him. Because normally, you shouldn't tell your parents F you. But he knew intuitively as well that that was not... The way to get him no, to go. No, it wasn't just not the way to get him to go. That that was tormenting yes. this kid. Absolutely. And even though Aiden knew that I was joking...
2: There's still something in the back of his mind. To put that seed in
0: there to say that, that, oh, no, God's going to send you to hell if you don't sit on a piece of wood with me and sing five songs, listen to a sermon, and then, you know, watch us all eat grape juice and and bread. In this case, it was wine and—watch us all eat wine and crackers, watch us all eat wine and wafers, and then blast off. If you don't do that, then you won't be loved by me— or the God of the universe. And That's heavy. when Augie said no to that, that was a sign that even though we had made that little mistake there, or I made that little mistake in, in this non-transactional way of thinking about our relationship with our kids and our kids' relationship with the divine, that the fact that our normal way of being was a certain kind of freedom to... Follow goodness, truth, and beauty. Mm-hmm. That once Augie was able to look me in the eye and defiantly cuss at me.
2: Mm-hmm. That's pretty heavy. Yeah, yeah, that's he was a, of yeah, he was a hero to me. He was a hero to me. He was a hero to Aiden. So too. then
0: then the next time we went to church, I said, Aiden, how about this? We'll go to church and I'll give you $5 if before the service you. you, you Parents are gonna hate me for this. You're not gonna trust me. <laughs> this but it is was, also, it was
2: motivation here. I don't think we're 27, I'm thinking motivation reward. I was twenty
0: seven, I was young. I said, go go to the front of the pew, turn around and he's just a little kid, so he wouldn't it would look like he was just being silly. I said, I'll give you five dollars if you go to the front pew, turn around and give me the middle finger.
2: Now you knew there was no way. I knew there was no way. He would do it. That Aiden would do that. I mean, I I knew Aiden too back in that. There. There's just no, no way. way. So there was a safety in being able to say that. But there you, was a little course, safety. But obviously if he, joking.
0: But if what you
2: were trying to say though is there anything that you can do to kind of get outside of your such he had such uh, high standards for himself. It just like you need to relax a little yeah. bit. you know, <laughs> he's a super you rule need,
0: follower. But that's not the main thing. I was trying. To show him, I think, I maybe I was making up for the last, last stupid thing I said, that, in fact, you want to be a good person because you want to be a good person, N- not because you want to be loved more or less by me mm-hmm. or not get in trouble with the old man in the sky that's counting how many naughty things you did right. and reporting to St. Peter, who's the gatekeeper of the pearly gates, right? Like, we can say this. We were some very dear friends in Colorado, and they made us uncomfortable. Ma- they made me nervous about the show because they are both educators. One has been a professor of education. One has been working in the school system yeah. for decades. Mm-hmm. And they said, "Look, there's there's a way in which you've got to you've got to use these external extrinsic motivations, and that." Maybe they kind of gave us the sense that this this Alfie Cohn style was a little bit too hippy-dippy, you know? Right. And it may be that at a practical level, this takes too much work for teachers who are overtaxed or for parents who have, you know, kids that are, for whatever reason – behaviorally difficult.
2: Grades are going to be a part of our system. They just are. Right. And so there, you know, there might be a few schools that don't do grades or whatever, but so you are, there are, there is going to be some of these other mo- motivations. There's going to be some of that, but as much as you can in the classroom, you can incorporate some of these ideas that I'm going to talk about when it, when you're able to, are you doing it? for the long-term goal of their love of learning? Or is this just maybe something that makes it a little simpler on me? Are you are you fostering...
0: Me a, as the teacher the or teacher, the parent.
2: Right, or the parent. Are you fostering a, a, a classroom environment or a home environment that increases competition, which then creates more of like a, a situation where the kids have less empathy for other people? Building or fostering an environment of unconditional love and intrinsic motivation is a lot of work it takes time it definitely does there's it's not an easy process and, and you ha- you need to think why do you have some of these external motivations are they, are some of them unnecessary
0: are they shortcuts uh, yes you know are you just doing the punishments or star charts and I don't mean star charts like astrology. I mean you know, it's star, you like,
2: like you know Johnny did this, and right? Then, right. You know, put a little and star a there and, and get a reward. And that it that's has the a short term effect, right? There's there's ways in which you can incorporate things in the classroom that don't depend on getting a star for doing something, but that it's part of what you do in this classroom. And there's different jobs and things that you have that we all do to participate to you know to be in this environment together. There's in the list here I'll go over some other things but I think it's important to remember what are your long-term goals and does this extrinsic motivator contribute to that long-term goal
0: or does so it just make it, your it, life on a on a Tuesday morning easier in your third grade class
2: Right because it will help with short-term things and it, sorry it will help with short-term classroom management or learning but there's a there's It undermines sometimes the education itself that you're. And
0: and let me say then, as a an educator in religious contexts, even if it's expedient in a classroom or as a parent who's got an unruly child at the mall, even if it's expedient to use fear of punishment, hope of reward, to use conditional parenting or teaching styles, even if it's expedient there, that doesn't mean in my world. That that is healthy for an adult spirituality, a mature, integrated, healthy spirituality.
2: Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, if you do talk about the threat of going to hell, you might get more attendance in your Sunday school classroom. But if that, is that the reason you want them to show up? You know, is that, yeah. is, are they really learning what they're supposed to from the Bible and what Jesus teaches?
0: Yeah, we were driving over I-70 and I was talking with uh, Chris and Amber, actually, about the uh, a church that we were driving past in, in the mountains near where we used to live in Evergreen. And there was a pastor there who became a universalist. He stopped believing in an eternal hell and he lost his job. And then I went out to dinner with him. And I was kind of making fun of them. I was in a good spirit. I wasn't trying to be mean. But I said, you know, what you're doing is a lot like traffic school in Hollywood. In Hollywood, you can go to traffic school if you get a ticket. And you can get a comedian to do, you know, like a starving comedian to do your, your class. And they'll teach you all the things you need to learn. They'll also do some comedy routine. Mm-hmm. And so it's an enjoyable <laughs> way of spending your Saturday morning in your traffic school. But you wouldn't go there on a date just for the fun of it. No. It was this idea that I'm in I'm in a state of punishment. Mm-hmm. I've got to go to this thing, so I'm going to go and get punished, but it's going to be an easy punishment. And I said to him, in many ways, because you were a megachurch pastor, you know, medium-sized megachurch pastor, you're a, a pastor of a large church, a very comfortable contemporary large church, people wanted to go to your church because they thought maybe they'll go to hell and maybe their kids will go to hell if they don't go to church. Mm. And they had nice seats with a beautiful view mm. and a really nice stage and good lighting. And they had programs for the kids and they had lattes. In other words... So it
2: made it easier.
0: It made it... If you're going more to... More entertaining. It was entertaining, comfortable, convenient. If you've got to go to church unless... Sh- you know, otherwise you're going to go to hell, then this is the church to go to. I don't think he got fired for his heresy. I don't think he got fired for not believing the right thing. I think he got fired because as soon as he said what he said, some people left because he was not following... The true teachings.
2: And that was a big building with big bills. Big build
0: yeah. <laughs> and that that goes back to that Molech idea of it doesn't even matter. If everybody in the room that was a leader thought that they should teach that there's no hell, it doesn't matter. Money needs there to be a hell because that gets people into the pews so that they can pay
2: the pastors the pay, and the staff. And the and lighting the, and the and mortgage the yeah, and the everything. buildings and grounds. Parking lot renovation.
0: So hey, oh Mallinson's trying to like hustle some kind of new theology here for us. Listen. What we're saying is, whatever you think about theology, whether you're even a Christian or not, notice that there is a financial benefit to a large suburban affluent church in Colorado saying that there is an eternal hell, and if you don't get yourself into these pews, you might go there. Even if that's implicit, that is going to keep the, the, the show going. Mm-hmm. It's going to keep this operation financially solvent and so regardless of what his theology is he had a message that wasn't going to make people motivated to show up they were going to go biking or hiking if you've been to colorado baby yes you have there's a lot of fun things to do on a sunday morning and if you only have two days where you're not a wage slave yep yeah (laughs) saturday is to sleep off your friday hangover and maybe get some you know something going on the lawn and then sunday now you got to. Now you got to go to church. At least make it one that has a latte and a nice comfy seat that you can lean back in. I'm not trying to be flippin' here. He didn't think it was funny, by the way. But what I'm saying is, maybe he thinks it's funny now, but what I'm saying is that that, or what you're saying even, is that this extrinsic motivation may have a short-term effect, but spiritually it is not healing. So now, Stacey, do you mind? Give us something positive. If we've screwed up, we need to have mercy on ourselves. Absolutely. We we all, everybody we all, told us to do this. Nobody's telling us to be we, unconditional it, about it, our parents. When
2: I when I was reading the book I just felt terrible because even you know, even though you said that we've done, you know, a relatively decent job at this, there's still all these ways that I see that i missed the mark and, yeah. and you're know, like, Oh man, like uh, We're always
0: conditional. Even when we're not trying to be. Absolutely. Not I'm not saying us, but just human beings.
2: Absolutely. So you need to have compassion on on yourself, which but
0: give your kids a call if you if yeah. they're adults now and tell them you love them and and, and maybe turn them on to this Alfie Cone stuff
2: absolutely well, and and the other thing too is is I do suggest if you're finding if you're resonating with any of this stuff, you really do need to read the book to hear a little bit more of exactly how this all plays in. Especially if you're a parent of younger children, and then what you know, how do you move forward? Or but a teacher. This is all just kind of a summary. I'm we're making you aware of a problem that we we've noticed and we've seen, and that Phil has noticed, mm-hmm. as well as and how. What do we do about it? How do yeah. we how do we switch this up? And how how do we then train our kids? To have these values that Mm -hmm. that we care about, that we want them to have. And by
0: the way, Phil, remember, I loved what he said about, you know, there but by the grace of God go I. Yes. I want you to focus, Phil, on that word grace. The grace that you can have for yourself or that you understand. When you understand grace, that is the key.
2: Absolutely. To
0: this whole thing. If you understand grace, it will come naturally to you. You don't have to be worried and always like, beating yourself up.
2: Grace is unconditional love.
0: And that's for you, Phil. That's for me and Stacy. That's for everybody you meet. So bring us home with the nine takeaways that you've got from this book.
2: Yeah, so here's some practical things to either keep in mind or things that you can do. Number one is respect. Each person is their own spiritual being their own person and we need to respect that we need to keep that in the back of our mind they are not somehow an extension of us they are not somehow this lesser being
0: they're they they're not our model train set
2: right that we're uh, they're not a container to dump information into
0: they're people the kingdom of god is for the children
2: <laughs> absolutely number 2 you interact with the kids you you want to when you, when they're doing projects and stuff you can get down there with them and when when you are interacting with them, if they're drawing a picture or something, show your interest in it. But refrain from saying, you know, good job or or good tree. Rather, oh, this is an interesting tree. And, you know, I see that it has these kind of like comment on it. You can encourage them with new things that you see in their drawings, but without placing value judgments on, on what they're doing or making conclusions. Sometimes even like when you're interacting with them a- about what they're doing or or judging their performance, per se. One, of the, one real good example with the, that is when you're saying, oh, you know, Johnny, you're being good, because you see Johnny sitting there with his hands folded nicely or whatever. That tells Johnny and the rest of the kids that what is good is just being compliant. Right. And, yes, that's the behavior maybe you want so that you can calm everybody down, but be careful how you use the word good and what you're saying is good, because the drawing... Is good no matter what they do but also you're you're losing out on an opportunity to find out where what they like about it and where they even see they fall short and so they may not even grow as far as what they could have in drawing the picture because what you said is that this fish, fish is just good enough or this assignment or this paper that they wrote is you know what i'm saying it's enough even if they know it's not their best work so if you that's another part is ask questions and do more listening and less talking. Let them tell you what some of their strengths are and some of their weaknesses.
0: Let's apply this, for instance, to little league coaching. You've got a kid. You obviously want to celebrate when they make a, a nice hit, you know, or if you're in batting practice and they really just they connect. And, you you, you know, if you've ever played baseball or if you've ever played softball, there's a, there's a sweet spot on that bat and you just kind of feel that thing. Squ- go out there let's say you got a line drive home run it is a it of course something to celebrate we celebrate when we're happy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but we're not saying the kids better because they got the hit Absolutely. what you want to do as a good coach is be positive and say now that was a that was what you wanted you were after that result notice how your elbow was up how did that feel how did it feel as you did this and they might reflect on how they weren't strained or it didn't rattle their hands the same way and so you can talk about the physics of the swing and where they hit it on the bat and say if you want to do that again make sure that you're confident and you step into the swing and whatever whatever it is that you want to try to tell them so that it's not that we're saying that you shouldn't be positive it's just that you shouldn't make all of your positivity be contingent on the success of what they ended up doing. Right. Because because they may
2: not then reflect on how they got there. Yeah. And they may not know how to repeat it and then they feel like a failure when they can't. Yeah.
0: Let them find the joy in the dance and the swing and the whatever, you know? Whatever it is that they're doing, it's not about the hustle in a in a rat race kind of way, but it's about the joy of the art of it. And same thing with, with painting. Hey, this really worked, it seems to me. That this this is kind of fitting together. What were you trying to communicate and so that they can They can kind of share with you what they were trying to communicate visually, and you could say, is there something that you would have wanted to do differently, or is there something we want to work on? So, even the negative stuff, or what you would think is criticism, isn't seen, hopefully, as a negative criticism. It's just, let's try to figure out how we can get to where you want to be.
2: Point number four would be, teach kids, teach them that other people have their own perspectives. So that they understand that their way of seeing the world is not the only way that it is seen. And so if they're doing something that might be hurting another child, you can ask them to reflect on that. So point number five, avoid self-centered reasons for doing things. So you don't want to teach your children that they should share their bike so that they can share their friend's Legos for instance or you know if their friend has the legos you want to make sure that they they're going to give of what they have just because they want to share this nice joy this joyful thing with uh, with their friend not because they're going to get something in return great example of how this can be effective is that i had my my sister and her family came to visit us and camp out on our property a while back and, and she has two daughters and one of them brought a friend and it seemed like the whole Time they were the the one that had the friend they were kind of getting a little bit more you know clicky together and excluding the older sister as
0: kids do as they do as big people do
2: and it was making my older niece super sad and there was a time when the my niece and her friend the younger one so there's a time when they were playing on the tire swing and they were having a great time together the friend and my younger niece and I thought this would be a great moment to to talk to them about the, the feelings of the older sister who was sad. And I said, you know, you two look like you're having a really good time, and they're totally in agreement with this. And
0: Meanwhile, <laughs> my, to my discredit and to your sister-in-law's discredit, we were both just constantly saying negative things about the younger daughter, saying that's bad, don't do that, include, that's bad, include your stop sister. it, include your sister, yeah, yeah.
2: And, and so I, I, yeah, I catch them in a moment when they're just having such good fun together. And, and I'm like, you guys, yeah, you guys are having a, just a really good time. And they, they were, oh yes. And going on and on and on about on the, the tire swing on the down tire by swing, the teepees. We've got Swim these hippie neighbors. <laughs> are swinging that, that, yeah. together. They're swinging together. And then I said, do you, do either of you have a time or can you recall a time when, when you didn't have somebody to play with? And then they both just jumped right on it like, oh, yeah, there was a time I like, tell me more about that. And I got the whole story from both of them, each a new one and even it involved how they came home crying and all this stuff. And, and I said, you know, that feeling that you felt then, that's what your sister is feeling right now. And do you want her to feel that way? And they're like, no, of course not. You know, that would be sad. You know, we don't want to do that. Well, maybe if you included her then in what you're playing with, then she can have friends too and wouldn't have to feel that feeling of no friends. And and then they they got it, you know, and they started to include her more. But it, it sort of took them, you know, invoking their empathy. And I mean, it was recalling from a time that they had experienced something, but the-, the But re- it was
0: empathy. It wasn't, right. a, it wasn't a threat.
2: But the reason for them doing it wouldn't be so that the older sister wouldn't leave out the younger one in the future. Cause I could have said that, yes. you, know, there, you know, there'll be a time when she has a friend or and I you won't, won't be give included. you candy or right. you don't get
0: to come hang out and have s'mores by the campfire later on. Right. Or whatever, by the way, uh, well done because that was, that was, you know, it's hard to, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. Mallinson is not trying to brag here. This is a, a thing that happened to her or it occurred to you. Yes. Uh, it occurred to her and it worked, and it was just kind of this exciting moment where we realized that this kind of thinking can actually produce really great results. When I was first teaching at the age of 26 in Kentucky, there was a superb English professor who would write songs. He'd write three or four little folk songs every day. Uh, we'll maybe tell someday about how I chased uh, people who robbed his house out with a World War I <laughs> rifle I'm against violence. I don't, don't think I don't think I had any bullets in it. But the uh, but this guy he 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 said, "Hey, you know, would you would you watch my house while we're on vacation?" And I said, "That sounds like, oh, I'll do that." And then I found myself chasing these hooligans with a gun and I realized I should have had a better plan <laughs> as oh, to no. what to do, you know, than this antique gun. <laughs> and then I saw him and then they looked at me and I said, well, this is an antique gun. And I just shook my fist at him, you know, <laughs> <Real hard. laughs> Get it, and stay out. But I love this guy because he had all these great songs. One of the, one of the songs that I loved was A Rabbit on a Leash. I, I, I wish I could find these songs and play them for you, dear listener. A uh, Rabbit on a Leash, my friend, a rabbit on a leash I, he just met somebody with a rabbit on a leash. He wrote a song, and it was great. But one of his best songs was, If you call me mommy, I'll give you something sweet. He was at a beach, mm. and he heard the stepmom say to the kid, If you call me mommy, I'll buy you something sweet. Right. And the only reason I want to interject in this, because you're on a roll, you're taking us home, but that doesn't work. work. Be mommy. Yes. And they'll buy you something sweet.
2: <laughs> <sighs> Number six is give kids autonomy whenever possible. There's a lot of times where we end up making all sorts of decisions for our kids when a lot of it can be unnecessary. And and it might be small things to us, but for the child, it could seem big. Like we might already know what they would order at the restaurant, for instance. Right. Right go ahead and and give them the choices
0: not because you're super uh, you not because you're a super pushover but because you're trying to help them exercise that ability to take ownership of their lives
2: absolutely and one of the things too when we were when our kids were younger was w- when they were old enough, we even had them order their own food and rather than us ordering it for them because they needed to learn how to speak to adults as well and be yeah. comfortable doing that.
0: It took a long time.
2: <laughs> it did, especially with our youngest, who was very shy.
0: But it's great now, Aiden, who is who okay, is the is most great. introverted and shy. With all of his friends, when he goes
2: out with his friends. Then he does all of their ordering now. So
0: proud, <laughs> but, they well, they, but they don't know. But I wish they,
2: the kids had, you know, learned how to order for themselves. Well, I'm, just, you I'm know? proud of
0: my yeah, my child. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that the. The fact is that so many people are never given that opportunity until they're now just thrust into it.
2: And you, you go in front of an adult, and it's scary, right? you got to you got to make words come out of your mouth and tell them what you want.
0: You have to know what you want. That's, you just have that's the another battle. thing. Yeah, yep.
2: that actually is another big piece of that. Next one, number seven. Invite them to be a part of the conversation and help create the solutions. Again, when you see that there's... A problem or something to be resolved, they can they can offer some solutions. What even you know? What should be the repercussions of certain things? So, for example, like what should be our policy? What should be our limits? You know, what are we Halloween camp, <laughs> right? You, you, maybe, yeah, come together and decide. There was, you know, there was a an, a, an example in the book where. Cone had gotten frustrated because his kid, and he does have little kids, so it's not all just you know made up stuff from somebody who hasn't experienced what it's like to have real kids. That would be real Bill tant- Gothard. Go Google Bill Gothard. <laughs> real He's tantrums. not married. Doesn't have any kids.
0: All right, <laughs> but has a lot to say about kids and parenting and so forth. But anyway, side issue. One of
2: his one of his kids had taken the, a bag of candy and just dumped it all out on the floor, and he had asked them to pick it up. They didn't want to, so he. he Asked them again, and then instead of when, instead of getting mad when they weren't listening, he went over and said, "Why why aren't you picking up your candy?" And the child said, "Well, because I'm not done eating it." And he said, "Oh, well, you can still eat the candy from the bag," and then they immediately cleaned it up. So right. you just don't always understand what's going on here, and the child everything wasn't doesn't have
0: to be a fight.
2: Trying to be defiant. But there, you know, there was a, there was a method to the child's madness. And so by being able to find out what's going on, that's part of it. But also another thing is if you're in a, in a say a church situation or a school situation and you have a difficult question that the child asks you, you know, you don't have to be the one doing all the research, invite them to look at certain resources or that you would come back together and discuss this next week or whatever is available to you, but you can point them in the right direction, but you don't have to necessarily Tell them the right answer if there isn't necessarily, you know, there, there's a lot of things where there isn't just one answer to a, to a problem. And so help them be a part of that process, which there's also where Cohen says, quote, The way kids learn to make good decisions is by making decisions, not by following directions. And that's a big, You're here. huge, key thing. I'll move on to number eight. Trust that they aren't trying to be evil or bad. And we've already mentioned this point, but don't assume that their motivations come from just trying to do a bad behavior. So number nine, keep your long-term goals in mind. I know we've already mentioned this, but what is it that we're trying, what what is it we actually wanna teach and what might we be accidentally teaching? Always ask yourself that question when you have a rule or something. And there's another point too that, Cohn made, and he said that there will there will be times when we have no choice. But it, you know, there might be an important matter. You're just tell you're, you you got to tell your kids come here now. You be, you know you right. have to do. And when you have used that sparingly, uh, more often than not, they'll they'll listen. Right then, when you really that's need definitely it been true for
0: Augie and Aiden. Augie and Aiden definitely a few times they don't get the point. But when we say, no, that ain't good, they realize that we're looking out for them. They trust that. If you're always saying no because you think that's what a dad or a mom is supposed to do, then they don't trust any of it.
2: And I guess I lied. So there is one more thing. Number 10. I actually have number 10. And I think this really probably is the most important out of all of them. You know, save the best for last, right? But you've got to demonstrate genuine spirituality And, and the way of unconditional love for yourself and your own life. And then you invite them to be a part of that. And when they see that, when they see that modeled, I think they naturally will want to cling to you. They want to, you know, they want that in their life. They want more of that. That's not something they're running from. Mm. That's something that they're like, how do I get more of that?
0: But that's the hard, hard part, because we actually have to have yes. that life-giving spirituality, a spirituality that sets us free, one that helps us to flourish, one that helps us to make sense of the world and in- increase our love for one another. If that's not the fruit of our own lives, it's not going to be helpful for them. This is the thing, by the way, that got our youngest out of church. He is on strike Mm -hmm. from church and he said the folks that you know dad the folks that you interact with not my my close friends at work (laughs) i'm saying that a lot of church people a lot of the people that are the naysayers that give you trouble online or in person or whatever if i look at what they're up to or even people that don't even know you a lot of the people that i see in the churches around america as I look at them, I see that they've got bad fruit. And it's not that they're hypocrites. It's that the fruit of their spirituality, the fruit of their philosophy, the fruit of their ritual, the fruit of their lifestyle and their teaching and everything is not something I want.
3: Yeah.
0: It's he said he said it to us. Now this I was both proud of him and it made me gasp. Yeah. He said, Listen to Jesus. If the fruit is not good, you've got to ignore that tree. And I'm telling you that your tree of American Christian Church has bad fruit. And you can't make me go against Jesus and follow you to some place that has rotten fruit. Now...
2: That was hard to hear. It was hard to hear. And we'll
0: have a longer conversation. Don't write in and tell us to whip him into shape. That's the whole point.
2: But it's
0: an important question. I couldn't
2: deny. I couldn't deny much of what he was saying. And that's.
0: (laughs) It's not the only story. I mean, we we were up with uh, Heather Davis and uh, we were we were just just having this this wonderful morning up in Los Angeles with people that hugged all the sadness out of me at a church service, and I wanted to bring them up there. There are churches, you're probably a listener that knows of a church or two that have that life-giving element or a religious community of some kind. That's not what we're saying. We're not denying that that's the case. But what he was saying is, if I'm going to go along with you, I need to see something that's life-giving. And so if you're a parent... Or you're a Sunday school teacher, or you're a religion prophet at college, or you're a teacher at a K through 12 parochial school. If you don't have something that is an undeniably beautiful gift, if you don't have something that is life giving to you, and it doesn't radiate from you, you don't have to be like on you know some show all the time. Aww. You don't have to. No, but but does it? I mean, this isn't just about our kids. This is about our own well-being. If something isn't giving us life, why would a kid want to look at us and say, I'm going to have to go through a whole bunch of hoops. I'm going to have to jump through a whole bunch of hoops just so that I have the right to be bored with you. Yeah. Or sad with you. Or abused with you. Mentally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. If you're in a spiritually abusive world, the kids are going to know it. And there's no amount of threat that's as bad as the threat of living the rest of their lives in your living hell. So this isn't for you to feel bad. This is for you to have an invitation to see that there's a door open and you can walk out that door into the joy of the presence of the truth, into the joy of the presence of the graciousness of unconditional
2: love. Absolutely. I will add one thing. If, if, if for some reason you're not quite grasping that, maybe one more example. I remember us talking with some of our kids' friends, and they were talking about the fact that they didn't want to get married because there were too few marriages in their lives that they actually wanted that marriage they and that was so heartbreaking for me they said they what what are our examples like my parents i don't want my parents life i don't want my grandparents life i i don't i don't think i don't think marriage is the answer if everybody i see is living in this sort of i don't know this kind of living hell why should i choose that life for myself that really broke my heart and it breaks my heart even more when it's done in the churches so i know friends this is really hard stuff and this the world around you isn't giving you this so don't beat yourself up know that unconditional love is for you it is your birthright and you are loved unconditionally so do not fret we've got this and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends.
3: But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going
0: out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why?
3: Why? That's
0: because you found this letter no too much.